Big Ten coaches, of course, they got the talking points. They're all excited. They're all happy. You get USC, you get UCLA. I think you got the, if you got them in a, rule, in a room, I should say, having a drink with them, just one-on-one, I don't know if they would be as excited about that travel. It helps them maybe make more money. They're also going to have to split the money more ways. It also helps them keep up with the SEC. But I think a lot of football coaches just care about winning and the idea of going out, traveling that far, maybe playing you know, a late game for your body clock if you're playing a night game out on the West Coast. I don't know if the coaches would truly appreciate that when it comes to the Saturdays trying to win a big game, and now you've got to go all the way out there to take on USC. Here was the commissioner, Kevin Warren. He said a couple of different things yesterday that stood out and made headlines. This was Warren talking about expansion yesterday and how the Big Ten may not stop with just these two teams. Here's the Big Ten commissioner. Here's what he said. I get asked every single day, what's next? It may include future expansion, but it will be done for the right reasons with our student-athletes' academic and athletic empowerment at the center of any and all decisions that we will make regarding any further expansions. We will not expand just to expand. It will be strategic. It will add additional value to our conference. Kevin Warren yesterday. Of course, expansion talk right, is not done. It's not taken off the table. The Big Ten won't be just simply satisfied or finished by adding USC and UCLA. And I imagine we aren't done expanding conferences. I don't think we'll be done until we get something more similar to the AFC and the NFC. With the other Power Five conferences right now on the outside looking in, trying to figure out where they fit in. But for the Big Ten, look, they're doing well. They're doing fine. But they're still in second behind the SEC. And I imagine they're not going to stop until they they close that gap or try to pass the SEC by. If they could add a Notre Dame... If they do so, they'd have to add another team to have an even amount. You get somebody from the Pac-12. You try to get somebody from, who knows, the ACC. And it's what I said previously about the SEC. They can kind of sit on their hands right now. They're fine. They're still in first in this arms race of conferences in college football. It doesn't matter that the Big Ten added USC and UCLA. The SEC is still sitting on the throne. But if the Big Ten makes another move, that could force the hand of the SEC. I think the Big Ten is kind of the linchpin right now in all this. The SEC could be satisfied and maybe not make a change again. The Big Ten is still trying to catch up. I think Kevin Warren has something up his sleeve. Maybe not in the immediate future, but sometime soon, the Big Ten will continue to try to expand. And if and once they do, I think the SEC will then have some sort of response, and around and around we go with the conference realignment continuing to play a big role in the future of college football. This is not the end of it. We're not done. These conferences are always looking at more options and ways to add teams. Kevin Warren was asked specifically about Notre Dame, and you know, he said, I'm not going to talk about any team that's in another conference. But we know Notre Dame, while the Big Ten may be the linchpin of the conferences, Notre Dame's kind of the linchpin of the teams. Here was Lane Kiffin, head coach of Ole Miss, who was on first take just a couple hours ago, talking about the current state of college football. Lane's not really a fan of all the moving going around. Here's what Kiffin had to say this morning. Well, it it is a mess. Um, you know, a lot of these decisions obviously are made for money. And, you know, I just don't – I got asked last week a lot at the league meetings about, you know, especially USC, UCLA moving and yeah. Texas, Oklahoma. It just doesn't seem right. You know, I said Texas, Oklahoma, that doesn't feel right. And USC, UCLA going to the Big Ten doesn't feel right or sound right. Nothing about it, and, and especially when you look at – scheduling how that would work out and the travel and away from classes um you know i'm sure maybe something went into it more than money but i don't know what could have possibly besides money went into making that decision and 
and tearing those conferences uh, apart like they are now. Yeah, I think it's just about money. Lane Kiffin's not a real fan. I'm sure a lot of college football fans, look, we don't like change. We like history. We like tradition. It's what I said at the top of this conversation, that the college football you grew up with or the college football even you got used to over the past decade. Since the last big changes we had when the Big Ten added some teams and the ACC got some teams and the Big East essentially dissolved, the college football you've been used to, the college football you've grown to love, it's not going to exist anymore. You lose the regionality. You lose a lot of those rivalries, the road trips, more of that community feel, and it is all about money. We know that, which is why it's not going to stop because these conferences, these schools still want to make even more money. Here was Heather Dinich on Get Up this morning talking about expansion in college football, and where do we go from here? What's driving this? What's next? Here was Heather Dinich this morning. Buku bucks. I mean, that's where it's at. And Jim Phillips said it perfectly when he said we are trying to close the revenue gap between them. Everybody's saying who can get into third place, right? Because these two are clearly the leaders. But in, in terms of the next move, you still have to consider Notre Dame. Because if they were to decide for some reason to relinquish their independence, what does that do to everybody else? What does it do? Well, then the Big Ten would have to add somebody else, I would think, because I don't think they would stop at 17. So what happens to the Pac-12? And don't forget the Big 12, because the Big 12 is still considering expansion. And I know that there are people in that league who want to bring up to six teams from the Pac-12. Pac-10 now. Can they they stay together? Heather Dinich this morning. As she said, right, the SEC and the Big Ten are clearly one and two. She referenced Jim Phillips' comments at the ACC Media Days last week. They're trying to stay three. And that takes me to Notre Dame, the team she brought up, because I do think they're the linchpin of the teams. The Big Ten is the linchpin of the conferences. I think they'd be the first to try to make another big swing, setting off a row of dominoes. I think the team it could be, or that could have an impact, would be Notre Dame, because they have all sorts of different options. They're trying to play their hands right now, use their leverage to remain independent and make more money than ever before. And it's a smart move by Notre Dame. If it works out and the playoff doesn't drastically change, removing some of their opportunity to be a playoff team, then if you're Notre Dame, you make the you take the more money, you keep your independence, you're good to go. But if you can make more money by joining a conference, if somebody offers you a better deal, right, they obviously seem like a natural fit to the Big Ten. The SEC is the best conference in college football, so if you want it to be anywhere, Theoretically, you would think you'd want to be in the SEC, and if everyone's knocking on your door, if you're Notre Dame and you have you know, your choice to make, maybe you prefer to go to the SEC, even if it's not in your same region. And then there's the ACC that they've always been a quasi-member to, and if the ACC could get Notre Dame in, maybe that could keep them in third place. Maybe that could keep them around. You'd have Clemson, you'd have Notre Dame. Pretty good one-two punch. And then you'd hope Florida State and Miami elevate to where they were in the past decade or two. And now you got you know a decent quadrant of teams in that conference, some good brands. If you keep Clemson around, if you get Notre Dame in there, Florida State and Miami elevate their programs, which you, you know we believe Mario Cristobal will at least do in South Florida, that could maybe keep the ACC around. Not put them on the same level of the Big Ten and the SEC, but at least keep them from going extinct. And I think regardless, if Notre Dame makes a decision, it would lead to multiple moves, with he- which Heather Dinich kind of alluded to there at the end. That if Notre Dame were to join the Big Ten, I think the SEC would have a response. If Notre Dame were to join the SEC someday, the Big Ten would have to respond. And if Notre Dame joined the ACC, well, maybe the Big Ten has a plan B up their sleeve of getting somebody else because they're still trying to catch up to the SEC. 
Which takes me to this. This was Kevin Warren again, the commissioner of the Big Ten. You may recall there was a story about a week ago about the Big Ten meeting with players. They're not going to use the word union. They're not going to say the players are unionizing. But they're having some meetings with the players. There's at least this idea of the players getting a cut of the money the conference is going to make as a way to bolster the conference, keep good talent in the Big Ten, have other teams be interested in joining the Big Ten. Kevin Warren was asked about this yesterday. Here's what he said about you know kind of teaming up with some of the athletes in the conference potentially down the road. Doug, one of the reasons why we're forming our Student Athlete Advisory and Advocacy Committee is just to be able to have discussions not only about money but about environment. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate because Greta and I are the parents of two former college student-athletes but one current student-athlete. So a lot of the discussions that we're blessed to have around the dinner table center around what we can do to make sure that we're creating the best college athletic experience for our student-athletes. So I've already started some dialogue with our student-athletes. We're going to amplify that committee here quickly. I want to hear it for, from them. I want to be a great listener to figure out what is important to them. It's so easy to talk about the money and share money, but what does that really mean? And I just want to make sure that I listen and learn and uh, to be able to have uh, big ears and a small mouth to truly understand what's important to them. And that's going to be one of the topical areas when we have our, our first parents council meeting here coming up later uh, uh, this, this year, next month in, uh, in August. I think it's actually next week. And so uh, thank you for raising that question. It's, it's a topic I think about on a daily basis. And I look forward for the Big Ten Conference to be bold and a leader in that area as we work through what's right for our student-athletes. Kevin Warren yesterday. I'll say this about him and Greg Sankey. We've seen it from both of them. They're trying to be these visionaries. They're trying to stay ahead of the curve or start something new. And that's the big difference of my concern when I heard the audio from Jim Phillips last week where he sounded a little outdated. He was trying to keep up. He was swimming upstream, just trying to stay afloat. Kevin Warren's coming up with ideas to stay ahead. Greg Sankey has always led the changes in the SEC, or in college football, I should say. That's why the Pac-12 has fallen behind. Their commissioner didn't know what was coming. And the ACC, I don't know if their guy, Jim Phillips, knows how to keep up or stay ahead or come up with a unique idea. Keep up with the times. Kevin Warren's talking about, you know, getting the players involved. There's speculation about the players getting a portion of the media rights in the Big Ten, again, as a way to just keep talent in, try to curb the transferring, or to try to make teams happy, keep their programs, keep their schools in the Big Ten, let others join the Big Ten. They want to go be in that conference now, which is an interesting idea to try to battle, say, the SEC, or even for the ACC to consider something similar. Not necessarily paying the players if you're the ACC, but instead no longer divvying up your media rights evenly. Right? It's like when you pool your tips at a restaurant or if uh, you work in sales and instead of doing commission, like you just pooled all of the commission and shared it amongst all the salesmen, and you're like, well, and I made a lot more sales than that person. How come we're making equal money? That's not right. In the ACC, Clemson's been driving the bus for years. It's Clemson and everybody else, and yet everyone's splitting the pie in equal parts. Why not base it off of how successful you are or how many wins you get as a way to try to keep Clemson happy and keep them from trying to leave the ACC? They can make more money while still being in your conference. The other schools in the conference may not like it, but it's for the betterment of the conference instead of breaking it all apart, and then you have Syracuse and Georgia Tech being left behind anyways, getting nothing. At least now you can still keep the ACC together. You keep Clemson in there. You keep Miami, whatever other schools that would start to be doing really well. 
and you split up the pie based off of who's having the most success instead of just evenly. We made forty million. We have ten teams. Everybody gets four million. To use random numbers, right? Big Ten's looking at something somewhat similar, but with the players. Let's get the players involved to keep them happy and keep them from leaving. If you're the ACC, why not do something with the programs to keep them happy and keep them from leaving in this wild time of college football? And the last point from yesterday, the last big headline from Kevin Warren was the idea of expanding the playoff. Both him and the athletic director at Ohio State talked about 16 teams in the playoff field moving forward. Here's Pete Thamel on uh, ESPN talking about uh, potential college football playoff expansion once again. Well, uh, I think today was a significant day in the future of the college football playoff. If, as a 16-team playoff was spoken about out loud, Gene Smith mentioned it and said he can't ignore it. Uh, Kevin Warren, the Big Ten commissioner, called it an intriguing concept. The most interesting reverberation from a potential 16-team playoff for realignment would be that it would likely keep Notre Dame as an independent. Notre Dame values almost more than anything access to a vibrant postseason, direct access through the playoff structure. If that's eliminated, they would go join a league, likely the Big Ten. So I really think the 16-team playoff and the notion of it has the Irish eyes smiling. Pete Thamel yesterday after some of the talks of the Big Ten media days. And again, we get back to Notre Dame. And it's why I said if you're the SEC, don't look to try to expand the playoff that would give conferences automatic seats at the table. That would make it harder for an independent like Notre Dame because you could just be driving them into the arms of another, such as the Big Ten. Notre Dame, though, in all of this, is a pretty big linchpin in the future of college football, and that has to feel pretty good for them. That's why they're trying to use their leverage to get $75 million to stay independent. They kind of control the next moves in college football. I've long been let it known. I prefer the college football playoff exactly how it is. We don't need to expand. But just like Lane Kiffin said in the clip we played earlier, the same reason why we have all this college football realignment to begin with, it's all about money. And if you can make more money by expanding the playoff, these guys are going to do it in college football. I'm sure we'll get there eventually. 16 teams, you give six automatic berths, 10 wild cards, have a 16-team playoff, nobody gets a bye, stretch it out over the course of the month, and make a lot more money. We'll probably get to that point eventually. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's better for college football, but it is better for the bottom line of college football, and that's what's driving most decisions these, these days. Covering everything from the Big Ten Media Day and yesterday in college football, all sorts of headlines. You could tell everybody is looking forward to football, talking about all sorts of different comments made by Kevin Warren yesterday at the Big Ten Media Days. When we come back, we'll play a little matchmaker with college football teams. The Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Reacting to the big headlines out of Big Ten Media Days yesterday. We'll play matchmaker in just a moment with some college football teams. Kevin Warren told Action Network yesterday there are a handful of schools besides uh, Notre Dame that would add value to the Big Ten. Sources said the other schools being considered by the Big Ten are Oregon, Washington, Stanford, Cal, Miami, and Florida State for possible expansion moving forward. Sounds like more than a handful. And no Clemson on the list either. 
for who the Big Ten may be looking at. As already detailed in the opening segment today and over the past couple of weeks, I think Notre Dame is the white whale that's out there. They're the golden goose, whatever phrase you want to use. They're the biggest team left that everybody would love to have. They're like the most popular girl, girl now at school, and everybody would love to go on a date with her. That's Notre Dame. Everybody would love to have them. Maybe even NBC or some sort of TV network that would keep them independent. So I figured, let's play a little game, and we'll play matchmaker. Which school would you rather have if we pit two programs next to one another from either the Big 12, the ACC, the Pac-10, 12, whatever they're going to be called? If you're the Big 10, if you're the SEC, which school would you rather take on? So we have our matchmaker theme, which I don't think it's actually from the game show matchmaker. I always forget. I think it's from a different dating game. Nonetheless, we have our theme. We're going to play a little matchmaker of college football programs. And Trent, I will ask you as well. We will both participate. I jotted down a random list of multiple teams to go head-to-head. So I ask you, if you're the Big Ten or SEC or just a general conference, Florida State or Stanford, who would you rather have come into your conference? Wow, that's a tough one, Luke. But I will have to say just off fan bases alone, I'm going to give it to Florida State. I would rather have the Seminoles in my conference. And that's tough to say for coming from a Florida fan here. I agree with you, Florida State. A lot of people point to academics for Stanford. Maybe that make them a good fit in the Big Ten. But realistically, I don't think many people care about academics in this whole conversation. And so Stanford, they've had some good years in football. Overall, I go with the tradition of Florida State and the more recent history of winning championships, and I just trust Florida State more. And give me Florida more than the West Coast when it comes to college football. Remember, they tried to have the national championship game out there. They couldn't even sell it out. Give me Florida State and just that state and that fan base. I'd rather have that region than Stanford. Geographically, I'd rather go down to Florida than go all the way out west. I think Florida State over Stanford. Let's go to Virginia. Have to choose one of those two schools. Virginia Tech or UVA, the University of Virginia. Which Virginia school would you rather have come join your conference? Well, there's potential that Virginia might be on the rise with uh, Tony Elliott now being the uh, head coach, but there's nothing like Virginia Tech football games in Blacksburg, i tell you what, right now. So give me Virginia Tech all day long, Luke Morrow. I agree with you again. Neither one really excites me, but I'm with you. Just because of the environment, I'd rather have Virginia Tech come in. At least I'll have those games every once in a while on a Friday night in my conference, and you get that fan base. And Virginia Tech... In recent years, right, they were better more recently than Virginia, I guess. But neither team, if I'm looking at a team, I don't know if I'm interested in either program. But if I had to choose, I think I'd put Virginia Tech over Virginia. Next one, as we play matchmaker, who would you rather have come into your conference, Miami or Oregon? Ooh, give me the U all day long. I think the U is back. You and I are both Mario Cristobal guys. I know some people in this office aren't, but I love Miami. Give me, even though Oregon brings a lot with Phil Knight and that and that Nike money, there's no doubt, but I'll take the U all day long. We're in agreement again. Wow. I thought I came up with some good ones here, and yet we're, <laughs> we're on the same page with all these. Yeah, I agree. You got to go Miami. They have a better history, tradition. They're a brand that I think there's three brands in college football that go beyond football. Like, even when Miami's not good enough on the field, they're still an interesting program. And I would say Texas, USC, Miami are the three schools that every year, they're like the Cowboys. No matter if they're good or not on the field or they're coming off a bad year or they don't have a great roster, we're always talking about them. We're always wondering about them. Oregon had a few years there with, you know, Chip Kelly or even uh, Mike Bellotti before him. But historically, I trust Miami more than Oregon. I think Miami's more interesting. 
Again, I would tell you I'd rather have South Florida be part of my conference than go out to Oregon. So I do agree, Miami. All right, maybe this next one will be a little more debated. Who would you rather have in your conference, Clemson or Notre Dame? Ooh, man, that's difficult. That's that's very difficult, and I, you know, I don't want to make any Tiger fans mad. Go ahead, here, do it. But I will have to say, I, I don't know, Luke. I'm going to take Clemson. Wow. I think just off of recency bias, two national championships. Dabo Swinney is still the head coach. They've been much more successful than Notre Dame over the past ten plus years. So I would probably have to choose Clemson as of right now. But that Notre Dame brand, those uh, those Irish fans, they really hold a lot of water. I've said it before in the show. We finally have a disagreement. I think Notre yes. Dame. Now, I do agree in terms of, like, right now, who would I rather have this year? Yeah, Clemson. Next year? Yeah, probably Clemson. But historically, if you're telling me this team's going to be in your conference for the next 25 years, I trust Notre Dame more historically because we've seen, even when they're down, even when they can't compete for a national championship over the past 20-plus years, they're still a huge brand that everybody cares about. They have a national TV contract, national radio contract. They have a huge fan base all over. Clemson, if they stop winning, they may return to pre-Dabo Clemson at some point where they're not on that top tier of college football. They're not moving the needle nationally in college football like Notre Dame does, regardless of if they're good or not. So for the brand, for the history, I go with Notre Dame over Clemson. All right, this is kind of more basketball, but who would you rather have in your conference? We're considering all sports, but a couple of basketball schools, Duke or UNC. Ooh. Man, you know, I'm just a known Duke hater, so I'm going to take UNC all, all day long. I think UNC, what have they been to four of the last seven, uh, you know, final fours? I think they're an incredibly, incredibly good basketball team. Big fan of Hubert Davis up there, so give me UNC all day long. I'd go with UNC, too, because the football program's better at UNC than Duke. Neither one's great. We'll see if UNC gets it together. And then basketball-wise, it's kind of pick your poison, so I think football makes a difference. But then also Jordan. You get Jordan brand in your conference. So I think UNC. I also think basketball schools are in big trouble in all these conversations because all we care about is football. So Duke, UNC, Kansas, even like a Syracuse could eventually get left behind because their football programs aren't good enough, and we don't care enough about basketball. Football makes more money. A couple more. Florida State or Miami, who would you rather have come join your conference out of those two Florida schools? Man, I love Miami, Luke. I'm going to have to go with the U as of right now. I'm going to take Miami to come join my conference. Like I said, I'm big Mario Cristobal guy. I think the future for Miami, starting from right now, is going to be you know close to the history back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. I'm with you. I think Miami has a greater future. I know Florida State's been better more recently, but I also think Miami is, is the bigger brand, and I say that with a lot of family that went to Florida State. I know they have a great tradition and great history, but still, it's VU. And I go back to what I said earlier. Miami, Texas, USC are the three schools that their brand transcends wins and losses. They're always considered cool football programs, even when the team's down. I'd go with Miami. i take Miami over most schools. We could do this all day, but let me get to two more of our matchmaker. We go to the Big 12. Baylor. Or Oklahoma State, who would you rather have come join your conference? Give me the Cowboys. Give me Mike Gundy all day long. I wish he still had the mullet, obviously, but I feel like Oklahoma State is just a consistently, you know, 8, 9, sometimes 10-win football team. I would rather have them in my conference as of right now uh, over the Baylor Bears. All right, I disagree. I go with Baylor. Wow. You look at Baylor, the last three coaches have all had success. Now, Baylor also has some terrible things in their past uh, with their programs. But Baylor, uh, last three coaches have all you know had the team ranked or played in big games, won double-digit games. It's Texas, 
And I also like Dave Aranda. I think Dave Aranda's future is bright. I don't know how much longer he's going to be at Baylor. I think Baylor may win the conference again this year. So I like the future of Baylor, and I also like just the history. Baylor, over the past uh, you know 15 years, has turned themselves into a pretty good program. I'll take them over Oklahoma State. And I do like Mike Gundy, but sorry, Mike, you're on the chopping block. Last one. A little more obscure. Kansas State or Boise State? Who would you rather have come join your conference? Ooh, man, that's that's difficult because you got purple jerseys, right, you know, which are an iconic, iconic uniform combination, and then you got the blue field, right? So that's how I'm going to weigh this here, Luke Morrow, and quite honestly, I can't stand watching games on the blue field. That's what I'm going to go with. Give me Kansas State. Wow. Give me Kansas State. I'm not a big fan of the turf either, but I'll take Boise State. Mm. Kansas State, outside of Bill Snyder, have never really had much success. I don't, I don't think they're a very big brand. I think Boise State's a bigger brand just because you think back to whether it's the turf or you think back to uh, when they upset Oklahoma, whatever that was, 15 years ago. Uh, they pulled off some big upsets. They had the Statue of Liberty play, and you know they had those fun offenses, and Chris Peterson came from there. So Boise State, I would trust more uh, moving forward than Kansas. I think they're a bigger brand. I think they're more exciting. Uh, I think they could be a better program. And you know what? I'll suck it up and take on the turf as well anyways. At so least that's something to talk about. Holding on to those Kellen Moore days, That's aren't right. We? Aren't we? Fiesta ball time, baby. <laughs> and, yeah, who was the running back? I think Ian Johnson. Yeah, that's right. right. And then he, like, dropped to his knee and proposed to his girlfriend. <laughs> uh, that is one of my all-time favorite college football. I am biased to Boise State. That is one of my all-time favorite games of all time. I watched. I actually watched it on YouTube within the last year. There's nothing better than the hook and ladder. Oh, if my if you have a successful hook and ladder play in college football, there might not be anything better than that. That game was wild. Yeah. Just watch the fourth quarter and then the overtime. It's so much fun. Uh, and they had a couple of trick plays. That was the big one. I forget what else they did. They pulled off a couple of plays to uh, beat uh, Oklahoma. And I think Adrian Peterson was on that Oklahoma team, right? My guy. But what a great game. That's right up there. USC, Texas, Vince Young, Matt Liners, maybe number one. Ohio State, Miami from 20 years ago is in my top three. And then probably Boise State, Oklahoma. Those are probably the, my three favorite college football games. All happened within like a five-year window there. Maybe we'll play Matchmaker again later on today or later on this week because uh, there's endless possibilities. But the team that you would most prefer join your conference, there you go, some of ours, as we talk more conference realignment in college football. When we come back, shifting gears a little bit, NFL training camps have all begun. Be very cautious about the most vocal coaches this time of year. More Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. NFL training camps have begun for this time of year. Be cautious about the most vocal coaches. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Training camps began across the league yesterday in the NFL. And this time, you know, we always say it about college football. I guess it's the same in the NFL that it's talking season. And so a lot of coaches doing a lot of talking and a lot of praising, right? This time of year, you'll never hear anything negative. There used to be a show on, I think it was on Fox, about a decade ago, it was called Lie to Me. It only lasted for a couple of seasons. I remember watching some episodes in the first season. It was okay. But it was about a guy who worked, I think, with like the police department, if I remember correctly. Tim Roth was the actor, well-known actor. And uh, he was a doctor, and he was an expert in body language. So he would work in like the interrogations with the police department, and he could pick out everyone's tell. 
He could figure out if they were lying or not. I believe the common one people always say is if you look to, I think it's specifically if you look to the left, right, that you're lying. But Tim Roth, it was somewhat of an interesting show. It got kind of old pretty quick, but it was pretty cool to see the different ways. I don't know if they were true or not, but the different ways that in the show they would point out ways that people lie. Everybody has a tell. If you play poker, you know all about it. And when it comes to NFL coaches, I think it's the same idea that when you maybe go out of your way to really hype somebody up, that's kind of a tell. That maybe you're trying to convince us, or maybe yourself, or maybe the guy you're talking about, but you're trying to sell something to us. And so I say this because this offseason, right, we've had Tyreek Hill go crazy about Tua, most accurate quarterback I've ever played for. You're either trying to convince yourself that, after chasing the money, or you're trying to convince us of that, or even maybe trying to boost the ego of your quarterback because you think that will be necessary. Devontae Adams just called like Derek Carr a Hall of Famer or something. Right, similar. And I know they're friends, so there's a personal connection. But he just left Rodgers. He goes to Carr. He's talking up Derek Carr. He's the great. He's just as good as Aaron Rodgers. Maybe you saw Bill Belichick in his press conference yesterday said more nice things about Mac Jones than he ever said about Tom Brady in 20 years. 20 years total. He exceeded the amount of compliments he gave Brady publicly in one day yesterday on Mac Jones. Why? Well, because... Maybe he's trying to build up the confidence of Mac Jones. Maybe he's trying to convince himself, or he's trying to convince you about how good his quarterback is. He didn't have to do that with Tom Brady. He didn't have to worry about Tom Brady. We all knew how good Tom Brady was. He didn't need to convince us. Mac Jones, maybe it takes a little convincing. Cliff Kingsbury did the same thing yesterday with Kyler Murray. Maybe you could understand the timing of that after the contract clause that was released. And Matt Rule was talking up his quarterback competition as well about Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield and how great things are going and how it's going to make both guys better and it's going to help them win more games this year. You ever deal with a pushy salesman? right? Usually the guys that are the pushiest are the ones that are pushing the worst products. It's somebody like on the side of the street right, trying to sell you a Fugazi watch or like the ticket scalpers are always the most obnoxious. Right? Maybe they're a little more desperate. Whereas if you're a salesman and you trust what you're selling and you trust your ability, it's like, all right, well, On to the next one. I'll find somebody else. You don't want to buy it? I'll find somebody else who will buy this product. And I do pretty well. The guys that are a little more desperate that are really pushing it on you because they got to make a sale. You ever sit down to have one of those um, timeshare experiences? They're going to offer you a free TV if you just listen to their little 30-minute spiel. And they always put the full-court press on you for those timeshares because nobody wants to buy a timeshare. The, The people that have something they really need to try to sell, or those who are not as good enough salesmen are the ones that usually are more pushy. They don't want you to walk out of the door without a deal. They need that deal. They're desperate. Same idea with the coaches. The ones that are the most talkative about their quarterbacks, even go out of their way to compliment them, are really high in their praise of their quarterbacks or their players, probably you're doing it for a reason. You won't hear Andy Reid step to the podium this week and go on and on about Patrick Mahomes and some sort of change he made or how he's looking. Because we know Patrick Mahomes is good. He doesn't need to convince us. We don't need to be convinced. We don't, even have, we don't even have to question it. Yeah, Mahomes, we've seen it. He's really good. Tom Brady, we knew it. Bill Belichick didn't have to say anything at the podium. But Mac Jones, there's no offensive coordinator, really no offensive coach on that side of the football. Jones is in just his second year. People believe he already hit a ceiling. And Belichick, he's got to lay it on a little thicker yesterday. Matt Rule, you're choosing between Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield. Pick your poison. Both will probably kill you. And... Um, you're wondering, or he's trying to convince all of us about how good it is for the team, and all oh, these guys are going to be really good. Just wait. This battle's making them better. We're going to win a bunch of games. 
And it sounds like you're kind of convincing yourself. The Panthers also put out a video today of the two of them at training camp walking out onto the uh, practice field together, talking and laughing. I feel like this is all its like a PR stunt. Baker, every time I go online, I see Baker and Sam are together. Maybe they just have that good of a relationship and they get along really well. That'd be great. But I also feel like the amount of times I see these videos on social media, the two of them like together, it's the Panthers really trying to put to bed this idea that there's some sort of actual battle and they're both in each other's corners rooting for one another. Whenever a coach is extra talkative, they're really talking up their guys, that immediately raises a red flag for me. You don't have to talk up the greats because we already know it. It's the guys that we're unsure about, maybe even you're unsure about, maybe them themselves, the players, are a little unsure, and they need a little ego boost in the public from their head coach. Trent, haven't you said in the past, you know, uh, somebody's lying when they offer up, uh, like, too many details or something like that? Yeah, if you if you start giving more and more details about what you're lying about, then, then I know immediately. Just tell me like it is and don't keep going on to the next thing, you know. Same idea with these coaches. Boom. Balachek went on yesterday. I couldn't believe it. That's how you knew he was lying right yeah. then and there. He just, we've never heard him talk about Tom Brady in that no. way. I'll tell you that right now. But Mac Jones is the best thing since sliced bread, yes. apparently. Right. Coaches either trying to convince themselves, their players, or probably most likely us, the fans or the media that are paying attention or listening. Matt Rule trying to talk you into this great battle between Darnold and Baker and how it's going to make the team so much better. This time of year, as training camps begin, when coaches get to the podium and they're all talkative, to me, it's more of a red flag than it is some sort of uh, you know, reason to be excited. Which takes me to this. We'll wrap up our one next. There's one player in particular on the Atlanta Falcons who was really excited yesterday. And I don't understand why players and coaches do this. We'll get to it next. It's the more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up hour one of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. I was just talking last segment about the coaches that are too talkative this time of year. Puts up a red flag. There's no reason you need to be so complimentary to certain guys right now. And let's focus on one player in particular because Kyle Pitts, the Falcons tight end, yesterday told the Athletic, quote, I do think we're going to contend and be able to fight for the playoffs and maybe even the Super Bowl. It's a new year. I don't think about the past and negative things. Said he thinks about proving doubters wrong every day. Now, look, as a player, you should be confident. Imagine going into the season saying, yeah, we're not going to make the playoffs. But to talk about, yeah, we could potentially compete for the Super Bowl this year. That's delusional when it comes to the Atlanta Falcons. But there's something about these Falcons. Remember when they drafted Desmond Ritter and he said like something along the lines of, I'm not leaving here until I bring him a Super Bowl? Something like that. Now you got Kyle Pitts talking about, hey, this year maybe we could even compete for a Super Bowl. According to ESPN's FPI, and we'll get more into this when we come back with Hour 2, they give the Falcons a 19% chance of making the playoffs, fifth worst. And in terms of winning the Super Bowl, they give the Falcons 0.9% of a chance to win the Super Bowl this year, fourth worst. Well, I guess they do have a chance. But this time of year, you don't need to make big proclamations like that if you're Kyle Pitts. Like, yeah, we will be a playoff team, and we may even go win the Super Bowl. Very slim chance that that would happen this year. Falcons will be one of the worst teams 
I imagine, in the NFL. When we come back, we'll talk about some of those playoff teams that are more on the bubble than the Falcons. Will they be playoff teams in the NFL this year or not? We'll get to that next. Hour two coming up. It's the Mara Midday Show on ESPN Radio. WTMZ 98.9 FM, WTMZ 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, we'll touch on the ACC preseason poll and what it means for the conference this year. Plus, which teams will be in the playoffs, which teams in the NFL will are, uh, are way off the playoff path. Get to that coming up. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcast is available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page, find the show, podcast it there. You can also leave a comment for the show at charlestonsportsradio.com by clicking on our show page. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Moro Middays. Or... On the phones, 843-721-9500. The Atlanta Braves are playing right now, finishing up their series with the Phillies here this afternoon. A little day baseball, and they're scoreless, heading to the second inning. Today is kind of the 11-year anniversary of that 19-inning win the Braves had in July of 2011 against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, technically... Yesterday would have been the anniversary of the game, but it finished after midnight. So it finished uh, on this day 11 years ago. So we could say today is the anniversary of uh, at least the moment in which they won in the bottom of the 19th to beat the Pirates 4-3. to You may remember that game if you're a Braves fan. Maybe you stayed up for it. Maybe you remember waking up the next day to see how long the game went and realized it went 19 innings. And what's crazy about it is nobody scored from the third inning until the 19th. So you want to talk about, you know, potentially a boring game where you go 15 innings without a single run from either side. And the Braves won in the bottom of the 19th. But you may recall, it seemed to be such a horrendous call at the plate. The umpires at that point probably just wanted to get out of there. The game took six hours and 39 minutes. And it was literally 2 a.m. here Eastern time, right on the dot, 2 a.m. exactly when the Braves won the game. The umpires probably thought, we are not going to a 20th inning. It was a ground ball to third. Runner was coming home. They threw it to the plate. The throw clearly beat the runner. And the umpires called uh, uh, Julio Lugo, who unfortunately just passed away within the last few months, within the last year. Julio Lugo was the Atlanta Braves sliding in. It was a force play. And the umps called him safe. You can go find the video online. Uh, You may recall when it happened 11 years ago. It looks like he's clearly out. 
Clint Hurdle and the Pirates coaching staff went ballistic. This was before you could challenge. And that was the end of the game. And the Braves won after almost seven hours of baseball at 2 a.m. in 19 innings on what looked to be a terrible call at the plate. And whoever put the ball in play also stumbled. He fell out of the batter's box. There was only one out. It was second and third. They're coming home on a ground ball. If the umpire properly called the play, they probably would have gotten the out at first as well because uh, the 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 guy fell down. So it was, uh, oh, Scott Proctor was the pitcher. The relief pitcher was batting because they had nobody left on the bench. So you had second and third, one out, bottom of the 19th. Proctor falls down as he hits a grounder to third. They looked like they got the out at home and then probably would have thrown it to first. We would have gone to 20 innings. It would have been a weird inning, uh, inning, inning double play because Proctor fell down. You're not used, if you're a relief pitcher, used to running the bases. He stumbled out of the box and fell on his face. Julio Lugo comes sliding in, apparently beats the tag. The Braves won in 19 innings. So there you go, 11 years ago today. I'll be honest, I don't really remember that one. I remember around that same time, the Mets and I think it was the Cardinals played about 20 innings. And I was out at the bar, and that was perfect. That was uh, the year prior, 2010. It was a day game, now that I'm looking it up. Started at 3.15, and it took seven hours, and they went 20 innings. So that game ended around uh, just after 10. So it was perfect. The game was at 3. I was with a bunch of Mets fans. It was a Saturday. We said, let's go out for the night. The game was still going out. We went out to the bar. It was going on until 10. It was perfect. Seven hours of Mets baseball to keep us entertained. And eventually the Mets beat the Cardinals in 20 innings. I remember where I was for that game. I don't remember the Braves game the next summer. Braves Pirates, 19 innings, went to 2 a.m. Maybe you recall staying up for it. And then the kicker was the very next night, they went to extra innings again. And if you are an umpire or a broadcaster, maybe even a player at that point, you're thinking, oh, geez, here we go again. The very next night, the two teams went to extras, and the Braves ended up walking that off in uh, 10. That's a tough trip to Atlanta if you're Pittsburgh. You lose in 19, and then you lose uh, in 11 uh, or in uh, 10 innings the next night. I'm sure they couldn't wait to get out of town. So the 11-year anniversary of a 19-inning game for uh, the Braves, one of the longest baseball games ever. And right now, the Braves-Phillies playing scoreless in the second. Hey, we closed out last hour. Sorry about Kyle Pitts with this idea that the Falcons are going to the playoffs and maybe even competing for a Super Bowl this year. According to ESPN's NFL Football Power Index, the Falcons have the fifth worst odds of making the playoffs this year, just a 19% chance. They have the fourth worst odds of making the Super Bowl, less than a 1% chance of, of, uh, of winning the Super Bowl. So I figured... Based off of the comments, based off of the FPI projections, let's run through a few teams. We'll determine if they are playoff teams or if they are way off. Playoffs or way off for these NFL teams. We'll run through about a dozen of them, and I'll let you know if I think they're heading to the playoffs this year or if they're way off from the postseason. We'll call it playoffs or way off. Oh, yeah. Got a list of about 12. I'll also give you... The FPI projection for ESPN's analytics and computer model of what they predict. I'll give you my answer on these teams. we got about a dozen. Let's run through if these teams are heading to the playoff or if they're way off. Playoff or way off. First one, Indianapolis Colts, Luke Morrow. Playoffs. I think they win the division. ESPN's FPI gives them a 61% chance of making the playoffs, which is actually fifth best in the NFL this year. When you look at the division, it's going to come down to the Colts and the Titans. And if you've listened to the show, you know I've never been all that high in the Titans. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop for that window to close. They've won the division, uh, what, four straight years they made the playoffs now? 
I just don't trust Ryan Tannehill. Never have. He played terribly in the playoffs, and now you don't have A.J. Brown, and you have Derrick Henry coming off an injury. Who knows what we're going to get out of him? I think the Titans' offense is going to take a step back from a year ago. For the Colts, should have been a playoff team last year at Carson Wentz. We're a playoff team with Phillip Rivers. Now you plug in Matt Ryan, who's similar to those last two guys. I think they win enough to win the division. They may only take 10 games. Go to the playoffs. I say the Colts are a playoff team. Playoff or way off the Los Angeles Chargers. Chargers also have a 61% chance according to FPI. That's the uh, sixth best. I have to say playoffs. Right? I can't. I don't think Justin Herbert's going to miss the playoffs three straight years. Brandon Staley's job probably depends on it, and they came one play away from making it last year. I do think the Chargers are a better team than the Raiders, maybe still better than the Broncos. They're in a tough division, but they have a playoff roster. They've had a playoff roster, and they have a really good quarterback in Justin Herbert. The big concern last year was Staley and maybe some of his decisions how aggressive he was with the use of analytics and going for it on fourth down. Maybe that will be better. This year, they also had a pretty good offseason, making some good moves uh, on the defense specifically. I don't think the Chargers win the division, but I do think they're a playoff team because I'll I'll just take my odds. I'll take my chances. That Justin Herbert's not going to go three years without making the playoffs. I think the Chargers get in this year. The Cleveland Browns, playoffs or way off? Well, they're not way off. That's too strong of a word, right? But for the sake of the exercise... I will say the Cleveland Browns are not a playoff team. I'll say way off as opposed to playoffs. Because I think even if Deshaun Watson misses even just eight games, just eight games, if he misses half the season essentially, I think that could keep Cleveland out in a tough AFC. The FBI projections give the Browns a 57% chance of making the playoffs, which is top 10. But that's a big drop-off when you lose Deshaun for half of the season. And then once Deshaun returns, he will have not played for almost two full calendar years. So I think in year one this year, I'll say way off for the Browns. Not a playoff team this year because of everything going on with Deshaun Watson. The Let's Ride Denver Broncos. Playoffs or way off? I'm a big Russell Wilson guy. I like the Broncos, but it's tough. I look at that division. I do think the Chargers are better. I do think the Chiefs are better. The AFC is really tough. Can one division, as good of a division as it is, can one division get three teams in the playoff field by themselves? Then you have Russell Wilson, who I think it was mostly because of the finger injury, but wasn't great last year. And you have Nathaniel Hackett, who's never been a head coach before. Now, the numbers tell us over the past 15 years, we usually get seven new head coaches a year, and on average, two of them go to the playoffs. So when you look at new head coaches this year, which two could go to the playoffs? Maybe Nathaniel Hackett is one of them. Again, way off's probably too strong of a word, but... I think the Broncos may be on the outside looking in in that division. I'll say the Chiefs and the uh, Chargers make the playoffs from the AFC West. I don't think they get three teams because the AFC is that good and that division's that tough that the Titans will have a better chance to maybe win more games in their lousy division. Maybe the Dolphins could win more games in the AFC East than what the Broncos have to deal with. ESPN's FPI gives them a 56% chance of making the playoffs. I'll say they are not a playoff team this year. Your Minnesota Vikings, playoffs or way off? They are given a 54% chance. They're a playoff team this year. They won uh, eight games a year ago. I think the addition of Kevin O'Connell will be big for that team. They were essentially a top 10 offense a year ago. The big concern is their defense still probably will be bad, especially in the secondary. But the NFC is so wide open. We can only pencil in probably four teams, if that, to be a playoff team. I mean, the Packers, Buccaneers, Rams, you feel good about those three. That's about it. I have questions about even the Cowboys. If the 49ers go with Trey Lance, I don't know if they're a playoff team. 
So almost uh, by default, I would think the Vikings could be a top seven team. Can you be in the top half of the NFC? I think the coaching change could have that big of an impact. They got plenty of talent on offense. Bill Barnwell gave them the fourth best roster for skill players. The Vikings are getting back to the playoffs this year. No surprises there. Uh, next one here, Luke. The Cardinals, playoffs or way off? I'll say playoffs. I look at that division. The Rams are the favorites. I think the Cardinals could be the second best team. The Cardinals with Kyler Murray, I would probably put them ahead of the Niners with Trey Lance. And we'll get to the Niners coming up. But I think Arizona will probably be the second best team in the division. They made the playoffs a year ago. And if you're the second best team in the NFC West, you should be a playoff team because the the rest of the NFC is so weak. The Cardinals are given a 54% chance, according to ESPN's FPI, to make the playoffs. I think they're a playoff team. By the way, plus, now you get Kyler Murray actually studying film. Should only make him better and the team better. And they made the playoffs last year without Kyler doing anything. So I think the Cardinals will be a playoff team this year. They've gotten better, better record each of the first three years of Cliff and Kyler. I think they may take another step forward this year. I'll put the Cardinals in the playoffs. The Mac Jones-led New England Patriots, are they playoffs or way off? This is a tough one. ESPN's FBI gives them a 51% chance, so pretty much a coin flip. Obviously, they were a playoff team a year ago. Uh, The Dolphins should be better this year. The Jets could even be a little bit better. I'm not telling you a playoff team, but just another tough team in that division. And for the Patriots, a lot of people expect them to take a step back. Man, when I look at the AFC, I don't think the Patriots are going to win the division. So now you talk about wild cards, and you're going to be dealing with maybe the Titans, the Dolphins, the Chargers, the um, uh, Broncos. And then, oh, you also have the Browns, either the Ravens or the Bengals. There's so many teams in the AFC. I'm going to say way off. Maybe they aren't way off, but they are not going to be a playoff team. They're just The AFC is so tough. We'll see what Mac Jones does in year two. There's, of course, concerns that the Patriots don't have any coordinators on the, on the coaching staff. It's hard to ever doubt Bill Belichick. I never do. But when I look at the AFC, there are just so many teams to choose from that could be wild cards that I'm going to take my chances that the Patriots don't get in. I think that's the safer bet, that I'll bet on those other teams in the AFC over Mac Jones and the lack of weapons they have on offense in New England. So the Patriots, not in the playoffs. I'll say way off. Next one here, the Jimmy Winston-led New Orleans Saints. Are they playoffs or way off? They have a 49% chance of making the playoffs. Again, the NFC is weak enough. The Saints should be the second-best team in the division. Michael Thomas just returned today. That's going to be huge. They got weapons. As long as Jameis Winston can play well enough, Losing Sean Payton is going to be the biggest uh, loss the Saints have to deal with. But you have uh, Landry and Kamara and Michael Thomas. And you have Dennis Allen coming back to lead that defense. They should beat the Falcons both times. Should beat the Panthers twice. Bad NFC. If you look at wild cards in the NFC, right, you're looking at the Cardinals or the Niners. Pretty much just the Saints. Maybe the Vikings. And then maybe the Eagles. Maybe the Commanders. It's a short field. I'm sure somebody will surprise us this year, but when I look at the NFC, I think it's uh, pretty wide open. I'll say the Saints are a playoff team. Next one here, Luke. The Las Vegas Raiders, led by Hall of Famer Derek Carr. Playoffs or way off? I'll say way off. They just snuck in a year ago, and that was one of those seasons that it just seemed like everything was going their way. You rarely, if ever, see an interim coach take over and lead a team to the playoffs. That was the first time it's ever happened, in fact, where the coach also coached the team to the playoffs. Bruce Arians with the Colts was close, filling in for Chuck Pagano, but Pagano came back. He was just filling in. It was the first time we fired a coach. Interim coach steps in midseason, gets the team to the playoffs as the guy. Plus, they had all sorts of fourth-quarter comebacks. 
They snuck by against the Chargers in Week 18. And while they added Devontae Adams and Josh McDaniels this year, that division's a lot tougher. The AFC is a lot tougher. And I don't know about McDaniels. He didn't work in Denver. I think the Raiders win fewer games this year. I think they missed the playoffs. Next one here, the Trey Lance-led San Francisco 49ers. Playoffs or way off? ESPN's FPI only gives them a 39% chance of making the playoffs, so I guess they're kind of in line with me. If it's Jimmy Garoppolo, I say playoffs. If it's Trey Lance, I say way off. Kyle Shanahan has not had a winning season without Jimmy Garoppolo. And if you look, Garoppolo's won like two-thirds of his starts. They've lost two-thirds of their starts without him. So say what you will about Garoppolo, but we've seen his worth. There's a big difference between all the other guys. And when it comes to Trey Lance, we get these stories about, you know, trying to change his mechanics, his throwing motion. He has some good days. He has some bad days because he's working through it. It's a little inconsistent right now. I just can't trust that. I think they may be the third best team in the division. Uh, I trust Kyler Murray more with the Cardinals. The Rams obviously are better. And even though the NFC is wide open, I don't know if the NFC West will get three teams in by themselves. So if it's Garoppolo, I'm saying playoffs. If it's Trey Lance, which it appears to be, the Niners kind of said so yesterday. Uh, I'll say way off. I just don't think he's ready yet as a first-year starting quarterback to lead them to the playoffs. The Washington Commanders, playoffs or way off? This is another tough one because, again, think of the potential teams that could be competing for wild cards in the NFC. There's not a bunch of them. I would put the Commanders on that list. Plus, when you look at the NFC East, we have not had a repeat champion in 18 years. I have plenty of questions about the Cowboys, even the Eagles. Could the Commanders now with Carson Wentz step up? You replace Taylor Heineke with Carson Wentz. See if the defense is much like the version from two years ago. You have a, a Super Bowl co- a head coach in terms of at least getting to the Super Bowl. The Commanders are given a 37% chance of making the playoffs. I'm going to say playoff team. I put them in the playoffs. I think they'll get a wild card, if not win the NFC East. And I think they'll be one of the better teams in the NFC this year because you have that good defense. Carson Wentz played really well last year up until the final month of the season, and he almost got the Colts in the playoffs. The NFC won't be as good as the AFC a year ago, so I think Carson Wentz could lead the Commanders to the playoffs, and he may even have better weapons in Washington than he had in Indianapolis. So uh, give me um, the Commanders in the playoffs. Last one here, Luke. The Miami Dolphins led by our guy, Mike McDaniel. Are they playoffs or wayoffs? Another tough one. 35% chance, according to ESPN's FPI, of making the playoffs. All right, when you look at the AFC, I put them in that same boat as the Patriots. And which one do I trust more? I would trust Belichick more than McDaniel. I trust Mac Jones more than Tua right now. Now, Tua is surrounded by more talent, but I still need to see the quarterback make plays. So when I look at the AFC and you're looking at potential wild cards, again, you have if we assume the Chiefs win the division, you have the Chargers and the Broncos and maybe the Raiders. If uh, the Colts or the Titans, whichever team doesn't win the division, the other one I imagine will compete for a wild card spot. And then in the North, uh, whichever team wins the division, the other two will compete for a wild card as well between the Browns and the Ravens and the Bengals. Then you get to the AFC East. I imagine the Bills win the division, and then it comes down to the Dolphins and the Patriots. So it is a tough field in the AFC uh, Tua is on the lower end. If you were to rank all those quarterbacks, Tua would maybe be last. If you were to rank head coaches, well, McDaniel's just unproven. He would be towards the bottom of the list. So I think there's still too many big questions with the Dolphins. I'll say they missed the playoffs. But as I mentioned earlier, on average, two out of the seven first-year head coaches make the playoffs in their first year. Could it be a McDaniel? Could it be a Nathaniel Hackett in Denver? Could it somehow be Doug Peterson in Jacksonville? There's always some sort of big surprise. You look at the new coaches, Kevin O'Connell in Minnesota, I think maybe he could be a playoff coach year one. You look at the new coaches, on average, two out of seven usually get to the playoffs in the first year. We'll see who they are this year. Maybe it is Mike McDaniel in Miami, but I'm going to say way off, no playoffs. You know, I never want to take this stuff as gospel, 
the power uh, index on ESPN.com, but some of these numbers really surprised me. The Cowboys have the, the third best chance. Maybe I'm bearing the lead here. Let me say the Bills have the best chance to make the playoffs, 75%. Packers are number two, 71%. The Cowboys are third at 70%. I find that hard to believe. That division to me is wide open. Again, haven't had a repeat champion in 18 years. I think the Cowboys had one of the worst offseasons in the NFL. To put them ahead of the Rams who just won a Super Bowl, and to put them ahead of the Buccaneers in that bad division, I don't agree there. I don't know if the Cowboys even make the playoffs, let alone win that division this year. Mike McCarthy was already answering questions yesterday about his job status. Right, there's a lot of drama around Dallas. And Dak Prescott's been at his best when he's had a really good offensive line and when Ezekiel Elliott was at the top of his game, and he has neither this year. So I got a lot of questions about Dallas. Then you look elsewhere in the list. I'm surprised the Browns still have a 57% chance, which is eighth best, because the Deshaun Watson situation is a real question. The Chiefs are only given a 55% chance, which is a uh, half percent, not even. It's a few percentage points in front of my Minnesota Vikings. Now, look, the Vikings have an easier division and conference, but still, you're telling me the Chiefs and the Vikings have the same playoff odds this year? I find that hard to believe. And I'm a Vikings fan. I trust the Chiefs a lot more, even in that tough division. And then when you get further down on this list, the Bengals have only a 46% chance of making the playoffs. That's ridiculous. Behind I mean, the Raiders. That's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. They only got better this offseason as far as roster you know, additions go. Right behind them, the Titans, only a 42% chance. Dolphins, 37%. So a lot of surprises on this list. Now, again, look, it, it's not gospel. I don't know how accurate it even is year by year. It's based off of a computer and analytics and projections and all that sort of stuff. But really some surprises to me on these rankings. I think the Cowboys are given too much credit. The Colts probably are even given too much credit. The Browns, and I think this computer model is underrating the Chiefs. They have the Chiefs as the third-best team in the division. I know a lot of people are down because Tyreek Hill's gone. I don't know if it makes a big difference. Bengals have less than a coin flip chance of making the playoffs. Titans, too. The Niners. Dolphins. We'll see. By the way, if you're a Panthers fan, the Panthers have a 26% chance of making the playoffs, which is seventh worst. And I already told you the Falcons are at 19%. That's fifth worst. So maybe don't expect too much from those two teams this year, regardless of what Kyle Pitts had to say yesterday about his Falcons. When we come back, we have the ACC preseason poll. I'll share it with you if you haven't seen it, but also what, what, uh, what it says. The biggest uh, thing I take away from this poll heading into the ACC football season. We'll get to that next. It's more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Overhead Door Company, the original garage door company, serving you for over 90 years. Call 843-767-0028 or overheaddoorco.com. Overhead Door Company of Charleston, proud to open Hour 2 of the Morrow Midday Show. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We have ourselves the ACC preseason poll. We'll run through it, and I'll let you know the big takeaway 
what it means for the upcoming year here on the Morrow Midday Show. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on the Man Search ESPN Radio Charleston. However, you listen to your podcast to always find the show in full podcasted right there. ACC preseason poll. Uh, it may be better to look at than hear, you know, run down on the radio, but quickly if we go through this thing. And I gave you my predictions for each conference on the show last week. You can always find that on the podcast. In the Atlantic Division, Clemson picked to finish first. No surprise there. Followed by NC State, Wake Forest. I had the same top three. And then Louisville, Florida State, Boston College, and Syracuse. In terms of first-place votes, Clemson got 111 first-place votes to win the Atlantic. Followed by NC State with 44. Wake Forest got six first-place votes. Florida State to Boston College even got one. In the Coastal Division, they have Miami finishing first, followed by Pittsburgh, North Carolina, Virginia, Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech, and Duke. I believe I had the same exact order. Miami got 98 first-place votes compared to 38 for Pittsburgh, 18 for UNC, 6-4 Virginia, 3-4 Virginia Tech, 1 for Georgia Tech. Then lastly, overall champion. Clemson picked to win the ACC overall. Not just the Atlantic, but they got the most votes to win the actual conference. They had 103 of the 164 total votes. After that, NC State finished second. With 38, Miami had eight votes, Wake Forest four, Pittsburgh and Virginia three, Florida State, UNC two, Boston College one to win the ACC. The preseason poll. Now, if you go back and look, preseason polls, right, we know aren't all that accurate. But based off of this, uh, Clemson, Miami in the conference championship game, which is what I picked last week, I think most people would say that. Here's what stood out to me, though. When you look at the ACC, I said this last week when we were going conference by conference. In fact, a week ago today was when we were looking at the ACC. I think the ACC could be really interesting this year. I think the ACC could be more open or have more competitors this year than we're used to. And so when you look at the polling here, and maybe everyone's in the same boat as me and we're all just wrong. Who knows? We'll find out as the season goes on. But just based off of the polling, you have nine different teams picked to actually win the ACC. Not their division, not just to get to the conference championship, but to actually win the ACC. Now, Clemson does have the majority of the votes, more than half. Uh, but nine different schools getting picked to win the ACC. When you look at the Atlantic Division, five out of seven schools got votes to win the Atlantic Division. When you look at the Coastal, we know about Coastal Chaos. It's, it's the most unpredictable division. Uh, six out of seven schools got a vote to win the Coastal. Now, we could argue if this is because the teams are better or they're worse. Is it going to be unpredictable? Does, do, do, uh, do the voters believe any of these teams could win because everyone's just that bad or the opposite. Have programs been elevating themselves? It's wide open that, that it'd be a good thing for the ACC, how unpredictable it is. And the fact that a lot of people have different picks for their champion of this conference. See, I tend to lean towards the positive side. I look at it as a good thing. I think this makes the ACC more interesting. And I think it's because a few teams are better or will be better this year than we're used to. Now, sure. Clemson, being perceived to take a slight step back, being perceived to be not as good as they were these past few years, overall is probably a negative for the ACC. Right, The King may not be as strong as they once were just these last few years. Opens the door for others. Last year we saw Pittsburgh and Wake Forest step through the open door. But this year when you look at the ACC, I think it's more about the other schools 
And while Clemson's come back to the pack a little bit, we believe. We'll see. We'll see how things play out this year, but that's the uh, idea and the perception. I also think the other teams have elevated themselves as well. NC State's really intriguing. I've been talking about them all offseason, but they have a good quarterback in Devin Leary, longtime head coach, a coaching staff that did not change at all this offseason, and they're bringing back uh, more starters than anybody in the conference. They have more continuity than anyone. Wake Forest has maybe the best quarterback in the conference based off of last year and who's coming back and expectations, and they won the Atlantic a year ago. Then you have Louisville, where Louisville um, may not have high expectations, but they could be intriguing because they have a quarterback who is heading into his fifth year and is older than everybody else and can be a a two-way playmaker. And Boston College, I wouldn't pick to win the Atlantic, but I told you this last week when we were previewing the ACC, Boston College could be intriguing this year too. I really like their quarterback. And when you have an NFL quarterback like they may, and you have, I think, a really good coach who's a defensive guy too. And we saw Boston College, you know, give Clemson fits a year ago. I think Boston College, I'm not telling you they're going to win the Atlantic or even be the runner-up, but they could beat some good teams. And then in the Coastal, the Coastal is always wide open. But you have Pittsburgh who won the conference a year ago. You have Miami who I think already year one of Mario Cristobal will be much improved. You have UNC who we've been waiting for four years now to really take off under Mac Brown, maybe this is the year when they have the least amount of pressure on them. And then even Virginia is interesting because you bring back a quarterback who is second in the nation last year in total yards, and now you give him an, an offensive coach and his entire offensive line back, or actually the offensive line has gone, but you bring him, uh, he, you give him all his weapons. I had that reversed. Right, Virginia offensively could be really intriguing. The ACC, I think, will be interesting this year. Does it lead to, like, a playoff team or an actual champion contender? I don't know. And that's the problem for these conferences. If you're not competing for the national championship, we really don't care. But the ACC, I think, could be deep. I think it could be interesting. I think it could even be a little unpredictable. I think it could be a lot of fun. Usually, it's clear-cut. Clemson's going to run the table and win it all, and they might this year. But I think NC State is going to be better than they have been. I think Miami's going to be better than they have been. We'll see if Wake Forest can follow up last year, which was like a historic season. We'll see if Pittsburgh can follow up their historic season. UNC may be better this year than they were last year. Virginia may be improved with a new coach. Louisville, I think, will be better than a year ago. Boston College could be better. So I do think the teams are improving. Clemson's coming back to the pack a little bit, we believe, and therefore it creates a really interesting ACC. You look at the SEC, only four schools were picked to win the SEC in the preseason poll. You look at the ACC, nine schools. So, again, we could we could have multiple takeaways that the top of the ACC may be better. Georgia, Alabama, you don't need to pick anybody else. Sure, that's the case. There is no Georgia and Alabama in the ACC. But I also think the ACC is more open, and it's also getting better and deeper and more interesting. And I think that could make for a fun year in the ACC this season. You can go find the full preseason poll online. Clemson picked to win the ACC by majority of voters once again. When we come back, it's time for Trent's Takes. It's the more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show.
It's the Morrow Midday Show of Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Less than a week out from the Major League Baseball trade deadline. See what happens in the next few days. Usually doesn't heat up until, you know, the final hour, final minutes. Not literally the final hour. But the last, uh, probably once we get to the weekend or through the weekend. Braves-Phillies right now scoreless as they play in the top of the fourth. Braves-Mets both won last night. It remains a two-game difference there in the NL East. And as outlined yesterday, that will be the most interesting race the rest of the way because of what's on the line. A chance to get a bye instead of playing a, a team like the Padres in the first round of the playoffs. And those two will play each other five times next week. So looking forward to that right after the uh, trade deadline. Hey, we do it around this time each and every day. We find out what's on the mind of the producer. It's time now to get to Trends Takes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's Panthers. right. It's time for Trends Takes. The radio cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, have you caught uh, any of Shark Week by chance? Have you tuned in to see what these big creatures are doing out in the, uh, out in the ocean here? I never watched Shark Week, but... I actually did tune in last night for the first time because my guys, the Impractical Jokers, were involved. Okay, yeah. So I had to watch that. Yeah, and and so I I saw that last night as well. I thought of you as soon as Uh I saw they were out there. That was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in my entire life. (laughs) It it started out so cool. They were going to send, I believe, who is it? Uh, That's Q, if I'm not mistaken. They sent him in the water to, uh, you know, look at sharks, and they went to an abandoned, uh, you know, shipwreck. And then it was an animated red devil shark that came out of the blue. That was one of the dumbest things I have ever seen. But I will say, the show after the Impractical Jokers got done, when they were talking about the Great Whites and the uh, giant squid battles that are happening, uh, I believe, in uh, Guadalupe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's just, like, massive squids and Great White Sharks fighting each other right now, and they have a bunch of scars and everything. But what are we doing with the Impractical Jokers? That was horrible. Horrible. Wasn't their best work. <laughs> I'll say I changed the channel as soon as that episode ended. I wasn't watching any more Shark Week. Some of it was uh, was entertaining, especially earlier on in the episode. A lot of their stuff, when they do scripted stuff, it's very corny. Yeah. And a lot of that last night was corny. They're better just like, uh, you know, when they do improv in their actual show. But tell you what, it worked. It got me to watch Shark Week. That's the only time I'm watching Shark Week. So uh, the crossover I guess, uh, worked uh, for at least one person. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw the video that's going around on Twitter right now because it's Shark Week of how deep the the ocean actually is. That's freaking a lot of people out. freaked me out when I watched it last night about, what, seven miles deep? (laughs) We have no idea what's down there, ladies and gents. And especially after I watched these great white sharks and these, you know, 10-foot squids going at it last night, I'm not a fan of the ocean any longer, Luke. I might just have to be a lake guy from here on out because Shark Week, this is what happens every Every year with Shark Week, I watch it, I enjoy it, but the sharks really freak me out. I will say, though, I don't know if I've asked you this. I want to get over, you know, uh, a true fear of mine. I want to hop in a cage and just see a great white shark and have it come up to the really? cage. I want Because you know that classic scene, right? The, the water's clear, there's nothing around, and then you just see a shadow a little bit away. And it's a 13-foot great white. My dad and I were talking about it last night. We want to go to South Africa, hop in in Cape Cod, and go see one of these beasts live and in person. Would you ever cage dive? No. No. no? Not a chance? No. And I was watching the, guy, the Jokers do it a little bit last night, um, get into one of those cages, go underwater, and uh, have the sharks come around. I would never do anything like that. The chance <laughs> that something could – if there's ever a chance that something could go drastically wrong, just the chance – I'm out. Like, I'm not going to jump out of a plane because something could go wrong. 
I'm not going to get around a bunch of sharks because something could go wrong, and I'm, I would never put myself in that position. I want to stare, you know, death and fear in the face. No, that, that's what you. I want to do because I'm terrified of them. So, like, if I get in there with the great white and see what happens, you know, and I'm not, I'm just saying, if, as soon as I see it, I'm going to call on the little radio and say, pull me up, pull me up, pull me up. You know, I don't need, I just need to see it in the water by itself because, you know, like, you got fish swimming around and everything, and then the fish just part, and it's a massive great white. I feel like that visual in the water in person might be one of the cooler things you could ever see i would say definitely not in a cage but if you could tell me like i was in i don't know if you could have a room underneath the water like that <laughs> but like if there was a glass window Ooh, okay and i could see out the window and see something like that happen but i'd actually get face to face and i'm inside some sort of structure like maybe a submarine i'd feel a little safer then but no way am i going into like a cage where i could almost reach out and touch Okay. You know, the the fish or the shark, I would never do that. But if you put me underwater with some big uh, glass window separating us and I'm inside like a actual structure, eh, maybe I'd do that. Yeah, you know, but go, looping it back, I was incredibly disappointed with the Jokers and their performance. It was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen <laughs> in my entire life. And, and you know, they were building it up, building it up. And it got me, my, bro my brother, and my dad. We're all sitting there watching and having a good time. My brother's in town. We're watching Shark Week. It's a lot of fun. And then they end it with an animated shark in the water. Horrible acting. I was incred incredibly disappointed because I'm a big Sal Valcano guy. I enjoy the Jokers. So that was a little tough to watch, Luke. But, hey, what can you do? It's Shark Week. It's becoming kitschier and kitschier yeah. every single year. And I really dislike that. Let me just see the great whites jumping out of the water getting at the seals. You know what I'm saying? That's what I need. Luke, I saw this on Instagram last night, and I really wanted to get your opinion on it because it's a phenomenal question. Which is more likely to happen here? TJ Watt uh, winning his third straight sack, uh, you know, being the leader in the NFL uh, for sacks, or Aaron Rodgers' third straight MVP? Which one is more likely as of right now? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I would say Watt. I feel like when it comes to MVP in all sports, there's a little bit of uh, it becomes a little bit of like a narrative or storyline award. And I almost feel like that would actually work against Rodgers, where a lot of times we see like um, like Phil Jackson. I don't know if he ever won coach of the year. Like you, you, you hold it against people when it comes to the awards. Ah, he already won the last two. Let's give it to somebody else. I think that comes into it more than the idea of a voter saying, eh, it would be great if Rodgers got it three times in a row. Whereas the sacks, it's just whoever goes out there and gets the most sacks. There are there's nobody in control of that award or that label. Uh, there's no sort of narrative or storyline. So I think that's just simply based off of, of performance. Uh, I think uh, Watt leading the league in sacks would be more likely than the voters even wanting to give Rodgers a third straight MVP. Well, I, I would have said what you said, but last year with the whole immunized situation and lying to the media and all that stuff, they still voted him MVP. True. He was the best player in football, and if he is that again, I don't see a world where they don't, uh, you know, have him as the MVP as of right now, but who knows? Because last year, I, I remember joking on one of the shows, I said, well, he's never going to win an MVP again because there's no way they're going to vote him. And bada-bing, bada-boom, he wins his fourth one after having an incredible regular season. So I would say as of right now, Aaron Rodgers winning that third, uh, that fifth MVP third in a row solely because of that video yesterday, yeah. quite honestly. I mean, that just fired every single Packers fan up. There's no doubt about it. Con Rogers, I mean, the guy is an absolute machine. If he wins the award, he has to show up to the uh, presentation by landing a plane oh, <laughs> on, on the Vegas Strip. On the Vegas Strip. Yeah, they got to have it at the Bellagio, and he's yep. going to come in and land a plane and then walk out, you know, slow-mo, and he's just going to accept the award and say, put the put the award in the box That's and right. then move on. Bada and bang. they're going to play that great song that I love. Oh, yeah. Wait, which song? 
a song from Con Air. I can't even think of what it's called off the top of my head, but it's a great song. We're going to have to play it next. Uh, Luke, uh, Jerry Jones might be one of the best people in the world. I love every single time he gets on the microphone. And when he was talking about Mike McCarthy, it was absolutely hilarious yesterday. He basically said, look, I I got plenty of options to be the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, but I believe in Mike McCarthy. I was going to ask you, do you think he actually believes in Mike McCarthy to be successful this season? Or was Sean Payton kind of trying to enjoy it? Because that's what everybody assumes, right? That Sean Payton will be the next head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Picture it in your mind right now. He's wearing the Cowboys hat. He's got the sweater on. He's absolutely loving it. Dak Prescott's his quarterback, no doubt about it. Do you think Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones actually believe in Mike McCarthy? Because personally, I don't think they do, and they're just holding on one more year until they can sign Sean Payton as their next head football coach. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think he believes in I'll say this about Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones has built this reputation of being like a George Steinbrenner, but really Jones has been a lot more patient with his guys than Steinbrenner ever was. So maybe he will, you know, keep McCarthy around. But I'm with you that you don't say you believe in somebody by then following it up with all your options. Right. You don't say, like, you love your girlfriend, but, hey, if things don't work out, I could date this person. Like, you know, if you're really into that person, you're not talking about the options that you could turn to in the next couple of months. You're all in with the person you have. So I think Jerry Jones, by saying that, is telling you, number one, he's, he's thought about it, obviously, these other guys, what he would do. He knows the talent he has around them. And then if you're going to list out those guys, you must not be all in on McCarthy if you're going to, in the same breath, follow it up with who could replace him next year anyway. So, yeah, McCarthy, I haven't looked. I would guess he probably has the best odds to be the first coach fired this year. Matt Rule. Matt Rule has Matt it right Rule. now. Yeah, plus oh. 300. Both guys certainly yeah. on the hot seat this year. Uh, yeah, McCarthy, no doubt, he, he's got to prove himself. Imagine Jerry Jones going up to his wife and being like, honey, let me tell you something. I, <laughs> I got options. Yeah. I, I got choices. Yeah, right. You know I mean. what I'm saying? That's basically what he said to Mike McCarthy, but then said, but I believed in him. Yeah. I believe we could be a playoff team. Jerry Jones, best soundbite in the NFL outside of Mike Tomlin. Not even close. Last one here, Luke, and I saw, also saw this on the internet, and I was very interested in it. Who is the most important player for the Panthers this season? Is it Christian McCaffrey? Is it Baker Mayfield? Potentially DJ Moore? Iki Aquanu, their new rookie? Sam Darnold? Who do you think right now is the most important player? Because I personally think it's Baker Mayfield. I think Baker Mayfield right now is the most important player on the Carolina Panthers, even though people are already reporting that he's taking second team reps and the internet's oh. up in arms. I usually go quarterback for all teams, but I do think the Panthers are an exception. I think it is McCaffrey. Mm. I think McCaffrey makes Baker's job easier, can make him better, where vice versa. I don't think Baker has the same impact on McCaffrey. And if McCaffrey's healthy, I think he's the the biggest uh, weapon they have and the biggest thing for the Panthers. When he's been injured, they've gone 3-17 and 17 the last 20 games he's missed. He's been injured the last two years, and they've been a terrible team. Um, so I think uh, it, it, McCaffrey, if you tell me he's going to be healthy all 17 games and he's going to play like he did a few years ago, I would take that over Baker Mayfield plays how he does or how he did two years ago. I'd rather have a top-performing McCaffrey than a top-performing Baker because I think McCaffrey will impact Baker and make him better you know, by proxy. So I say McCaffrey. Over under right now, how many games is McCaffrey playing this season? Yeah, that's a good question. Ten. I'm going to say I'm going to say I'll go I'm going to go under ten. I don't think he plays a full season once again for the third straight year. Yeah, I'd probably go under. It's hard. Uh, the guy has been uh, – he's missed 20 of the last 33 games. I, I can't expect him to get healthier this year. Um, I think he'll miss the majority of this year too probably, unfortunately. Which is my concern for Derrick Henry. A lot of these guys, right? Yeah. You, like you don't get healthier as you get older. Once you no. injure one thing, that could be that could be the snowball effect. Um, so for McCaffrey, yeah, he's been so banged up. It's been a series of different things. I, I'm not going to assume that all of a sudden 
he's going to be fine and get through, especially at that position, taking all those hits. I cannot assume he's going to get through 17 games this year. And we talk about Derrick Henry. We actually talked about this off air, like a big guy like that. Remember when Kevin Durant injured his foot for the first time and he broke his foot? We all said he's done, right? Mm -hmm. Derrick Henry had a foot injury last year at six foot four, you know, 240 playing running back. You're, uh, I don't know how you improve from there. You're going to kind of be banged up for the rest of your career, and he's already been in the league, what, four or five years? So for in running back years, he's got about two more before he starts a significant decline. Yeah, in high school, in, it was a talking point when he was uh, coming into the draft. It's gone viral. I remember Colin Cowher said, I not, I'm not going to touch him in the draft because of already the amount of work that was put on him with the amount of carries he got even in high school and then in college at Alabama. And now, after a few years here in the NFL, he's been a, a real workhorse, now has an injury. So I got a lot of concerns about Derrick Henry. Uh, but taking it back to the original question, it's the same idea with McCaffrey. Smaller running back. He's already got all sorts of injuries. I don't think suddenly he's going to go through this year and just have perfect health. He's going to be dealing with injuries, and I would imagine he's not going to get through the year once again, unfortunately. Which is why, if you want to go back years ago, I said on this show that before they gave him the contract, I said I would trade him now. I would not want to extend McCaffrey. I do not trust his health long-term, and unfortunately I've been proven correct here the last couple of years. We'll wrap up Hour 2 when we come back. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Wrapping up Hour 2. Hey, we were just talking about uh, Shark Week last segment and the crazy things you could see in the ocean and how I would want to stay away. On Twitter, Stephen said that you can do that. Go to an aquarium in regards to what I said about how I wouldn't want to go into a cage but put me in like some sort of structure with a big glass window. Now, I haven't been to an aquarium in years. I have to plead ignorance. Can I go to an aquarium and see, like, some sort of crazy sharks going around? Yeah, you know, little sharks. You ain't going to see any great whites, you know, floating around the Charleston Aquarium. I believe they have an albino crocodile, if I'm not mistaken. Ooh. So you can you can see that uh, a genetic mutation of, uh, you know, American science there. I'm intrigued. I was never a big aquarium guy. I was never big into any of that. Like, you go to the zoo as a kid on a field trip or with your family. Never a big fan of the zoo. Aquariums. Always kind of boring. You're a big animal rights guy. Good for you. Yeah, Good for right. you. <laughs> exactly. That's the reason. <laughs> we even went, I remember we went on one trip to uh, Washington, D.C. just to go to like museums and see all the history. And as a kid, oh my goodness, that was brutal. I was never into that stuff. Take me to a ballpark instead. That's a good vacation or field trip. But uh, yes, that'd be one thing I would do. I'll go to an aquarium and look through a big glass window where I feel safe. As opposed to actually going some sort of cage underwater to go look at some sharks. No, thank you. Hour three coming up. We'll get back towards college football. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. WTMZ 98.9 FM, WTMZ 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Yes, back, 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 back again. 
Shady's back. Tell a friend. Guess who's back? 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 Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston. However, you listen to your podcasts. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. You can always get in touch with the show by heading to charlestonsportsradio.com. Clicking on our show page, leaving a comment there. On Twitter at Morrow Middays, text the show, 843-608-1734. Or you can always join the conversation on the phones, 843-721-9500. We've been talking about college football realignment today. Last hour, we talked about the ACC media poll. I meant to bring it up at the time, but I find it interesting. When you look at college football, there's three clear favorites in college football this year and from a betting perspective. And it's Alabama, Ohio State, and Georgia. Then you get to everybody else. Clemson has the fourth best odds, but there's a pretty good gap between them and the top three. And then after Clemson, there's a pretty big gap between them and everyone else. More bets have been placed this offseason so far in USC winning the national championship than any other college football program. Now, part of this are because of the odds. They have much greater odds. You're not going to bet necessarily on Alabama, Ohio State, or even Georgia, because just based off of the odds, it's not necessarily worth it. You know, they're the favorites. So you'll take a better payout with USC. But I do find it interesting that they are the number one team. There's a lot of uh, faith and belief in Lincoln Riley and USC immediately in year one. And they're similar to Clemson. We've always compared Clemson to, like, uh, Pete Carroll's USC, right? Dabo's Clemson is like Pete Carroll's USC when he really had USC humming out there. And it was a conference that they could dominate. And, um, you know, Clemson could dominate the ACC. And then you get that playoff spot and brought in some really talented pieces. Dabo and Pete Carroll have some similarities where they're more of that cheerleader. They hire really good coordinators. And they're just uh, the guy that overlooks the program. Good recruiters, always positive guys. So you see those similarities. And we always thought for USC, they could get back to that point with the right coach, right? Like that's still on the table for them. The Pac-12 is still there for the taking. You just need either the right coach there, somebody like a Pete Carroll from 15 years ago, or you need somebody who could bring in the talent. And those probably go hand in hand, the coach and the talent. Uh, But Lincoln Riley certainly has brought in the talent. But if you were to look ahead to this year in college football, which team would you trust more? Now, again, the odds probably say, yeah, it's a better bet to just take USC. But if the odds are equal, who would you rather bet on, Clemson to win the national championship this year or USC? Or to phrase it another way, who do you think would be the best team outside of the three favorites that could actually win a national championship this year? Because we have the clear-cut top tier of college football this season in Ohio State, Alabama, and Georgia, and then everybody else. Which of those other teams would you trust the most? Clemson, has, they have, what they have going for them is that they at least have shown themselves. You know, Dabo has shown that he's capable. Lincoln Riley has never won. He's gotten to the playoffs and then has been embarrassed. His program hasn't been able to break through. Now, you could say, well, that was an Oklahoma thing, 
Now he's at USC. All right, well, for USC, we've never seen them during the playoff era compete to go actually win the Pac-12 or make it to the playoff. And maybe it's a faulty logic, but we do it a lot. You know, it's kind of human nature that we don't really buy into something until we see it for the first time in often cases. And so for Clemson, I mean, we've seen maybe not with these coordinators, but we've seen Dabo win. Maybe not with this quarterback, maybe not even with this roster, but, you know, we know what Clemson's capable of and what Dabo's capable of and the championships they've won in recent years. For USC, it's a lot to expect in just year one. You bring in all these transfers, all these different pieces, and now we think Lincoln Riley – Suddenly now, he's going to have a team that could compete on a national stage with the SEC, which he did not have at Oklahoma. Maybe, right? There is greater talent out in the West Coast. There's a reason why he went from Oklahoma to USC. You can get theoretically better talent there, better resources, and you brought your quarterback, Caleb Williams. But to answer my original question, I do think, at least for this year, I still trust Clemson more than USC to go win a national championship. I think they're both in a similar boat where they can both win their conferences this year. They could. I think Clemson has a better chance of winning the ACC than USC has winning the Pac-12. I think Clemson has the recent history of showing that they've gotten it done. Dabo has actually won national championships. Lincoln Riley has not coached in a national championship. And then I also think there's a better second team in the Pac-12 than the ACC, right? Like, I think Utah's better than maybe even USC this year, but anybody else that the ACC could offer up not named Clemson. So I don't know if USC even wins their conference this year. I don't know if Clemson wins the ACC this year. They'd be my pick. But as we talked last hour, I think the ACC is a little more open this year. Could be more intriguing. And we'll see what happens. The one big difference, the one advantage that USC does have is the quarterback. You hear me talk about it ad nauseum. In order to compete for a national championship or win a national championship, you need elite quarterback play. I don't think Clemson will have elite quarterback play this year. I think that's what holds them back. Defense is going to be really good. Will Shipley should be really good. I think the coaching will be just fine. Obviously, the head coach has already won national championships before. Conference is winnable. I think it all falls on the shoulders of DJ and or Cade Klubnik if he replaces him. And that's the big difference. For USC, you have Caleb Williams, which is probably a big reason why so many people are high on USC because they have one of the, who we believe, to be one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And the other two, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, are on the two programs that have the best odds to win the national championship. So you feel like you're getting really good value at USC. When you look at the three best quarterbacks in college football, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Caleb Williams, two of them are on the two favorites. So it's like the old Sesame Street, right? One of these things is unlike the others. Yeah, USC, where they have one of the best quarterbacks in the country. They have a coach who at least has won conferences before. They've brought in a lot of talent to the roster. But you're giving me whatever they are. They're like plus 1,200 or something. Right? You're giving me these big odds, too. So I do understand from a betting perspective why USC is the most bet-on team to win the national championship. But to change the premise and ask the question of outside of those three favorites, Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, who would you trust the most? I still think I trust Clemson more than USC for year one. Do you want to ask, like, the next 10 years? Eh, it could be different. I think Lincoln Riley will be good for the Trojans. I think they could build something. But this year? I do think Clemson will uh, have a better chance of winning the national championship. I think Clemson has a better chance of being a playoff team this year than USC. Other teams outside of those top three favorites, there's not a lot to choose from. Like, do you trust anybody else in the Big Ten to win a national championship this year? Because I don't. Do you trust anybody else in the Pac-12 besides USC? 
I think Utah potentially could be a playoff team. If I had to pick somebody that could maybe make the playoff out of that conference, not named USC, maybe Utah. I don't think Utah could go win a national championship this year. I think they get blown out by an Alabama. I mean, they did hang in there with Ohio State, but, you know, it wasn't the playoff last year. You always have to wonder about, in that case, for Utah, that was their national championship. For Ohio State, that was a disappointment. I would like to see them play in the playoff. I think it could be different. Uh, in the Big 12, I don't think any of those teams, Oklahoma, Texas, or anybody else, is a national champion contender. And the ACC outside of Clemson, I don't think anybody. And then the SEC, maybe we get a surprise, right? Maybe a Texas A&M this year. Or maybe an Arkansas, or who knows? The SEC is talented enough that just like LSU a couple years ago, you may not have saw that coming. Maybe you didn't perceive, uh, you didn't expect Georgia's dominance a year ago. The SEC is so talented, and they bring in so much talent. Those programs are good that that's the one conference that could maybe surprise you because any one of those programs could have a big year. So point being, those are really the only two teams I think realistically you'd want to choose from anyways, like USC and Clemson, if not picking the top three. And USC provides better odds, so you'd probably rather bet on USC than Clemson. But realistically, I still think Clemson has the better chance of winning the national championship. That's probably why they have the fourth-best odds at Vegas. I would put them fourth as well. But I did see that little tidbit, that anecdote, that more people have bet on USC than anybody else. And um, I did find it interesting. Just like Zach Wilson has received like some of the most MVP votes, or I should say uh, MVP bets, because of maybe some off-the-field, off-season storylines and because of the great odds in the NFL. Speaking of quarterbacks in the NFL, Trent had sent me uh, an article last night from Pro Football Talk about the Minnesota Vikings GM being brutally honest with Kirk Cousins about how he may not be the guy, may not be good enough to go win a Super Bowl. After what Rodgers did, I think Kirk Cousins, he's going to have to show up now, right, to training camp as some other Nick Cage character. That'll really win the people over. I don't know what other character you could dress up as. I don't know what other character Kirk Cousins really looks like. I think that may be the move. An insurance salesman? He could, he could, he could do that. <laughs> that. That'd be good. A librarian, potentially? Yeah. No disrespect to those job, uh, you know, those jobs, but Kirk Cousins looks like he would work in that field, potentially an you know, enterprise car salesman. That's true. I was thinking of some sort of role of Jason Bateman where he like wore a suit <laughs> in a movie or something. He just shows up at Marty Bird you know, with yeah, a denim right. shirt and, and uh, you know, slacks. I think that would fit well. Now, if he was going for Nicolas Cage, right, because that's the that's the flavor of the, the week right now. If he's trying to copy Rogers and he says, man, I got to dress up like a Nick Cage character now. There was one movie where Nicolas Cage was like a con artist. It came out about 20 years ago. It was actually a pretty good movie. Most of Nick Cage's movies are horrendous, especially in the last uh, 10 years. He does any film that requests his uh, his services. But there was one movie about 20 years ago where he was a con artist, but he was oftentimes in a suit. And that'd probably be the one. I'm trying to think of the name of it. Maybe it was Matchstick Men. I think that was it. It was actually a good movie. Matchstick Men from uh, about 20 years ago. And Nicolas Cage was oftentimes in a suit. Or he also wore a suit in um, Lord of War. Right? Wasn't that the one when he was selling like guns and ammunition? I don't think uh, Kirk Cousins, though, has like the boldness to pull off a character like that. I also got thinking, because while we're on the subject of Kirk Cousins, since I brought us here, there was a story about a week ago where former... Vikings linebacker Ben Lieber, who now works uh, as a media member in Minnesota, and he works on the radio broadcast. He told the story, uh, or just really an anecdote, or his opinion even, on CBS Sports Radio last week that went viral. 
in which he said he thought Mike Zimmer, the former head coach of the Vikings, him and Kirk Cousins did not like each other. They hated one another. And so it got me thinking, how many coaches in the NFL do you think actually hate their quarterbacks right now? Because I don't think Mike Zimmer was the only one. If you were to look through the NFL teams and wonder about coaches that may hate their quarterbacks, and as the old cliche goes, right, hate may be too strong of a term. But which coaches are like, man, this guy, this is the guy I'm stuck with? If you were to look around, Zach Wilson probably went in the opposite direction after this offseason, right? You feel even happier, like, yeah, that's our guy right there. But otherwise, if he's not unhappy yet, if he doesn't hate him yet, I could see Ron Rivera by the end of the season, like most of the other coaches in his career, being upset with his quarterback, Carson Wentz. My God, this is the guy you give me this year? We went from Taylor Heineke to Carson Wentz. Are you kidding? I can see Brian Dable with Daniel Jones. He just went from Josh Allen. Now he's got Daniel Jones over here. It's a new relationship. But I can see pretty quick where Dable, it's like uh, from Seinfeld with Frank Costanza when he wouldn't take his shoes off when he went to uh, that woman's house way back when. And the father says, this guy, he's not my type of guy. Same idea. That's what Brian Dable is probably saying already at training camp when he goes from Josh Allen to Daniel Jones. He's watching him thinking, yeah, this is not my type of guy. We need somebody else here. I imagine Dan Campbell probably can't stand Jared Goff because Dan can't. They seem like polar opposites. And Goff is really like conservative and Campbell's a, a I just saw a video today of Campbell doing drills with his guys at Detroit training camp. Like he seems to be balls to the wall all in. Jared Goff at least gives off the perception of kind of being the opposite. It's probably part of the reason why the Rams got rid of him. Matt Rule. Probably every year feels that way about his quarterback. And right now with both Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield, again, if he's not already feeling it now, probably by midseason, he's thinking, oh, my God, this is what my job's on the line. This is what I'm stuck with. I got to choose between Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield. I think he probably already feels that way about Darnold after last year. That's why you go out and you get a Baker because he's the best option for you. But pretty quickly, especially if Baker may act kind of how he did in Cleveland, Rule's going to be thinking, oh, my future in the NFL, it falls on these two guys? I'm screwed. I could see Matt Rule pretty quickly hating his quarterbacks. And again, maybe hate's a strong word, but really being upset with the situation he finds himself in. I know Pete Carroll right now is probably ticked off. I don't think he wants to rebuild at age 70. I don't know if he wanted to get rid of Russell Wilson. He won kind of that war of egos, so maybe he appreciates that. But then he looks around, you got Geno Smith and you have Drew Locke, and you're 70 years old, Pete. Right? Probably on your way out, you're thinking, oh, geez, these are the guys we're going to have to coach? These are the guys that we're going to have to try to win with. You go from Russell Wilson to those guys. I think there may be quite a few coaches that we got this story last week. Everybody, right, because it's um, you see it as a headline. Mike Zimmer hated Kirk Cousins. It's easy to run with. But then I think if you go through the league, I think there's a lot of coaches that if you got them in a room, again, hate's probably too strong a word. I don't know if they'd say, I hate that guy. But they would tell you, like, oh, I can't stand our quarter. I wish we had somebody else. I think Mike Vrabel will probably tell you the same thing right now with Ryan Tannehill. I was going to say, Vrabel is probably the, the biggest one out of every team. He he despises Ryan Tannehill. There's no doubt about it. And he had no better options outside no. of Malik Willis, who's probably a project for the next five years. And I'll tell you what, most coaches probably wouldn't say it. Vrabel will be the one guy that will like go on a podcast or something and tell you, like, oh, yeah, Tannehill, like, I don't really like that guy. As soon we as he's out of Tennessee, he's going to oh, be yeah. like, we never liked him. Yeah. We never liked him. Absolutely. The same guy that said he would cut off his junk to win a Super Bowl. <laughs> you kidding? <laughs> The moment they get rid that's going to be the press conference. We never liked him. He's an idiot. I hate that guy. I'm glad he's gone. That's going to be Vrabel with his mustache. 
Oh, we were just talking about mustaches the other day. You know what? Vrabel's the one that eh, kind of pull it off. Yeah, no doubt. no doubt. Now, do you think there's any quarterbacks out there that hate the head coach? Like, just flip it on flip it on its head as of right now? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. There has to be, right? There has to be at least a quarter of the NFL. You played sports growing up. Yeah. Everybody hates their coach. Oh, man. Oh, boy. <laughs> Most athletes, uh, because they think they're wronging them or right, they should have a greater opportunity. All right. If we were to look at that, I could see Dak Prescott not liking Mike McCarthy very much. Absolutely. Especially the way the playoff game ended. And, like, Dak, it was kind of like who, you know, they were, who was at fault for that time management? And they talked about practicing the play. And most people blame McCarthy. But then a lot of people are blaming Dak of saying, you're the quarterback. You've got to be smarter. You should have slid earlier. Should have been a little quicker on spiking the foot. You should know how much time's left. So it was almost like a blaming game this offseason of, of who's more responsible. Dak's probably sitting at home like, why is everyone blaming me? The stupid coach, that was his idea. Um, So certainly Dak Prescott. I would tell you last year they probably all hated Urban Meyer in Jacksonville. Oh, yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty uh, – would you think that Derek Carr and Josh McDaniels, if it doesn't go well, uh, Derek Carr might think a little different about this, Cap McDaniels? Yeah, I could see so. You know, McDaniels – and, again, we're just trying to interpret from the outside looking in. He's from that Belichick school. Whenever they show him on the sidelines, like he's never smiling. He's always got his visor on. He doesn't seem like a very friendly guy or a fun guy to be around. But – People have also said that since his head coaching um, opportunity with Denver, you know, he kind of learned from his mistakes, and he has lightened up in recent years, and he is more, like, personable and jokey and everything. So maybe he's more pleasant to be around. But, yeah, like, if things aren't going well, he's the new coach that comes in. He's an offensive coach. Carr had a pretty good year last year. You know, if the team's struggling this year, if things aren't going well, yeah, I'm sure he'll be kind of missing uh, John Gruden. Maybe not for some of the things Gruden said in emails, but uh, him and Carr, Carr bought a house, like, live on the same street as Gruden. They had a pretty good relationship. So now you have the new coach come in, and if things don't go great, I could see Carr souring on uh, Josh McDaniels with how tough he may be. But as I think about it, maybe there's not as many obvious examples of the uh, disliked coaches. Um, uh, I'm, I'm running through the division by division here. I don't know. I don't really know about any of the others. Other ones. I, I don't know how popular Matt Rule even is in Carolina. That's that's the thing, right? Like it, it seems like there's no there hasn't been a press conference where a player has come out and been like, "I love Matt Rule. He is phenomenal." So he might be one of those guys. Yeah, could be. So, anyways, there you go. Since we went down that uh, that rabbit hole, I don't even know what we were gonna get to in this segment, but that was more uh, fun for me. Anyways. If you're missing the show, you can catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. We did open the show talking about why I think the NFL could be at a bit of a crossroads heading into this season, depending on how things go this year with specific teams. And you can go find that on the podcast if you missed it from earlier. Plus, we covered the Big Ten Media Days, and we're all over that. There's three big talking points to come out of the Big Ten Media Days yesterday. The idea that the Big Ten's still looking to expand, we all should have assumed that. The second one being that the Big Ten is in favor of expanding the college football playoff. We all should have assumed that. The reason why we're realigning these conferences in college football, because of more money. It's the same reason why they're going to expand the college football playoff eventually, because of more money. And then the third aspect, too, was Kevin Warren was asked about this idea of, you know, maybe players actually getting a portion of the money made by the conference. It helped try to curb the transfer portal and people leaving, schools leaving, even players leaving, maybe other People would want to come into the Big Ten. And it'd be certainly a fascinating idea. I don't know if we'll get to that point. Then you'd be talking about, right, they're almost employees of the school. And you'd also be talking about, like, 
that players would probably have to create a union, and that gets real dicey, and they've tried in the past in the Big Ten to come up with player unions that never really got far. But it would be intriguing, and I think if you're the ACC, you should almost take that idea and apply it to teams. Instead of splitting the amount of money you make evenly across all the teams, instead, whichever team's doing the best. So, like, Clemson makes more money than everybody else because they're the most successful program in the conference. And that'd be a way to keep Clemson from trying to leave the ACC. They wouldn't have to go chase the money in the SEC because they're making now more money in the ACC. And it's based off of their own success. Could be at least an attempt to try to keep them happy. But in all these conversations, two things I think are pretty clear. Number one, the Big Ten's the linchpin of the conferences. I think they'd be the ones to make the next big move, even though they just made the last one. And if and when they do, it would force other conferences to try to make a big move. Right? It would start that domino effect. And I think of the teams, Notre Dame is the linchpin for a few different reasons. When you want to talk about playoff expansion, well, Notre Dame plays a big role in that. If you limit their source to the playoff, they then would may have to join a conference, therefore starting the dominoes of more conference realignment. When you talk about conference realignment, I think everybody would love to have Notre Dame be part of it, whether it's the Big Ten, the SEC, or even the ACC, to try to keep themselves alive. I think Notre Dame's the linchpin in all this, or they just stay independent. But if Notre Dame were to make a move to, say, the Big Ten, it could impact even what we do with the playoff in the future. It could impact how the SEC responds. It could impact what happens to the ACC. If Notre Dame joins the ACC, let's say, and maybe that's the biggest long shot, but it could keep them afloat, and then maybe we have three conferences, three power conferences that remain. If they join the SEC, then ooh, talk about right dominance of a conference in college football. I think the Big Ten hold the cards of what's going to happen next because they're a little more desperate than the SEC. The SEC doesn't have to do anything. And I think Notre Dame kind of holds the cards of quite a few things. Right? They may not have to join. They may not join a conference until they're forced to because of the changes to a college football playoff. But those were the three big takeaways from Big Ten Media Days yesterday. That Kevin Warren's still talking about expanding. That when they're talking about cl- the playoff expansion, they're talking 16 teams, which I think is way too many. There's not 16 champion contenders in college football each year. And the third part being maybe we get to a point that not only name, image, likeness, transfer portal, college reali- the uh, conference realignment, all that sort of stuff, but also maybe even players are getting a portion of the money. College football, as you knew it, obviously is gone. And we'll continue to see these changes moving forward and the sport evolve and change. And Hopefully good enough for you to still stick around and be a fan of the on-field product. When we come back, speaking of those changes and the moving around, Which of the transfer quarterbacks has the most to prove in college football this year? Which one could have, like, the biggest resurgence? We'll get to that next. It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Which transfer quarterback 
has the most to gain this year in college football. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. Plenty to choose from. I believe the final number is 21 quarterbacks transferred to Power 5 programs, at least in terms of uh, expected starters. There are, what, 65 Power 5 schools, 21 brought in a transfer, so that's about a third of the Power 5. I'm really intrigued, before I get to my, you know, the big names on the list, I'm really intrigued by the guys that transferred within the same conference, most notably in the SEC. Now, this is something. While I've always been pro-transfer, and the NCAA was talking about uh, you know, allowing kids to, to transfer however many times they want without any sort of penalty. Eh, fine with me. I'm, I'm all for transferring. The one thing I don't like, though, is transferring within the conference. Because you know, I don't want any sort of tampering going on in the handshake line after a game, trying to recruit a kid after you just played that team to come over to you. And then you get a little shady when you know he's playing for this team and then he goes over to another team to try to go beat them the next year. That's the one thing. I don't really like the idea of transferring with it. Transfer wherever you want, play right away. But if you go within the conference, I think that's when you should sit out a year. And conferences used to have that rule. They've all removed it. There was two conferences left this offseason, and they may have both made the change. Where no longer do you have to sit out a year if you transfer within the conference. That's the one thing I would keep with the transfer portal. Otherwise, let them go whenever they want, or, or at least wherever they want. Maybe not whenever. Maybe not during the season. But transfer wherever you want. You don't have to uh, you know, go play, but just don't go within the same conference. But all that's to say, I'm intrigued by a couple guys in the SEC. You have Max, uh, Max Johnson, son of Brad, friend of the show, who um, goes from LSU to Texas A&M and now plays there with Jimbo Fisher. And then you have the former quarterback at Texas A&M, Zach Calzada, go from A&M to now Auburn to replace Bo Nix, who transferred out. So that's intriguing to me. Right, uh, familiar faces in new places in the SEC, if you will. But when I think of quarterbacks with the most to gain, we've talked about this in the past about most pressure. This is different. Which quarterbacks have the most to, to gain? You know, Caleb Williams is the one that is on a top of, uh, you know, towards the top of a lot of lists when you talk about transfer quarterbacks. But I don't know if he'd be on the top of this list. Does he have the most to gain? Yeah, sure. Like if USC goes to win a national championship, of course. He could be a Heisman winner this year, potentially. We have high expectations. But he goes into this season, I think, with the highest stock of any transfer quarterback. In fact, he's different than most transfers. Most transfers transfer because they're looking for a new opportunity. They're looking to get away from their program, get away from their coach, go somewhere else where they can start or start you know, fresh. For Caleb, that wasn't necessarily the case. He was just following Lincoln Riley, his coach, who went from Oklahoma to USC. So we've already seen Caleb Williams play. He played well last year. We have high expectations of him. It's not like he's trying to rebuild his his, – the public opinion on him or he's trying to be reborn again, if you will, you know, save his career. That's not the case. We think Caleb Williams may be the Heisman winner this year. USC may be a playoff team. And if they're not, well, he still has at least one more year at USC next year before he has to go to the NFL anyways. So for Caleb Williams, I would exclude him from this conversation of which quarterback that had to transfer has the most approved or has the greatest opportunity to turn themselves around. I thought of a couple of names. Let me work my way up from the bottom towards the top. I thought of guys like Keaton Slovis, Jackson Dart, Bo Nix as well. Now, Keaton Slovis, he transferred into – Pittsburgh out of USC. And so what's interesting there is because you're replacing Kenny Pickett. So there's this idea of it being more about Pittsburgh. 
than it was Kenny Pickett. Here's the concern for Pittsburgh. We were talking about the ACC earlier this afternoon. They also lost their offensive coordinator. And if you've been paying attention to Pittsburgh this offseason, their head coach really threw their former offensive coordinator, Mark Whipple, under the bus, Pat Narduzzi. And Pat Narduzzi made some comments about how he was surprised the team didn't run it more last year, right? despite the year Kenny Pickett had. Think about that. You had the best quarterback statistically in program history, and the head coach is saying, hey, how come we're not running it more? Yeah, because you have a great quarterback. You don't need to run it. You gain more yards by throwing it. But defensive coaches, I just lived it with Mike Zimmer of my Vikings. They love to run the football. They like to, to play uh, keep away, old physical football. We're going to play good defense. We're going to run the football. We're going to control the football. They don't like to pass. They don't like to be aggressive and take chances, defensive coaches. So my point being, new offensive coordinator at Pittsburgh, defensive head coach. I don't think Slovis will have the same output as a Kenny Pickett. I think the offense is going to be very different than what you saw last year for Pittsburgh. They're going to be more about defense, run the football, control the game, play a little keep away, play lower scoring games this year. That's what Pat Narduzzi wants to do. Then you have Jackson Dart, who's in a similar camp in that he transfers to Ole Miss, who just had uh, a great season from Matt Corral, and he gets to go play for Lane Kiffin. He's another former USC quarterback that transferred out. USC had three quarterbacks that went and transferred, former USC quarterbacks. And Jackson Dart was a four-star recruit, played uh, pretty well as a freshman at USC. He could go to Ole Miss, play really well, put himself you know, back on the map here. I think he's going to have a good year. I laid out my reasons why last week on the show, but you go play for Lane Kiffin, he could try to fill those shoes in Matt Corral. So he has a lot to gain. Where you may not really know the name yet, Jackson Dart, but you could by the end of the year. He could propel himself into some conversations. And then there's Bo Nix, who left Auburn and went to Oregon. And I was never the biggest fan of Bo Nix. I remember Auburn fans used to reach out to the show and defend them and everything. And maybe more people came around to my side of the camp. I was never the biggest fan of, of Bo Nix, who started as a freshman there at Auburn. He goes to Oregon, where... You know, Oregon, they always have high expectations. New coach in Dale Lanning. The thing about Bo Nix, though, at Oregon is that he has a big opportunity here to try to, you know, win some people over. But Oregon also has one of the top quarterbacks in the country coming in behind him. So that puts more pressure on Bo, but it's one of those things like, well, if this doesn't work out, we'll be just fine next year. And then Bo's kind of forgotten. Now, if Bo Nix has a good year, then again, much like the other names I mentioned, he could try to propel himself higher up into that conversation. But it is Oregon. It's the Pac-12. It's out there in the West Coast. You're not paying as much attention. They got a big quarterback coming in. Bo still seems kind of bit, uh, kind of uh, to be a little bit of an afterthought. Then I get to the top three quarterbacks. I thought of when we're talking transfer quarterbacks in college football, with the 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 most to try to prove or save or you know the best opportunity to try to turn themselves around. And Dylan Gabriel's one that I thought of, who transferred to Oklahoma. It was a big get for Brent Venables there at Oklahoma. And the reason why I would put Dylan Gabriel high up on the list is because at UCF he suffered uh, an injury that kept him out for the year. And so he's a little bit of a, a hidden gem. People aren't really focusing on Oklahoma getting him. That was a big-time get. And behind Caleb Williams, he may be the most talented quarterback that transferred. And then he's going to go play for Jeff Levy, who was the offensive coordinator at Ole Miss last year for Matt Corral. So, you know, connect the dots here. You have a guy who put up you know, some good numbers at UCF, suffered an injury, goes to Oklahoma, is going to play for the same OC that last year helped Ole Miss have that great offense. In Oklahoma, with Venables, big brand, wide open conference, Dylan Gabriel could be a guy coming off of an injury that kind of turns his career around and can see what he does for Oklahoma and really build something there. 
And then I get to the top of my list, where Spencer Rattler, yes, would be on the top of the list, but I'm not sure if he's one or if he's two. The two quarterbacks I think that could do the most for themselves this year after transferring would be Spencer Rattler because the expectations were higher on him than any of these other guys. He's had a bigger fall from grace than anybody, and he's trying to dust himself off and get back up to that point, climb those steps again. And he could try to do that with a good year at South Carolina. He could try to turn himself back into a first-round pick. right? Maybe he'll no longer be in the Heisman conversation, but uh, maybe he's in the all-conference conversation. Try to turn himself back into an NFL quarterback because right now, today, he's not there yet. And not only could he do a lot for himself, but a lot for the team as well. We've talked about this already this week and in the past weeks that you just need that one. That'll open the door to a lot of other quarterbacks for you. So, you know, you can help me out. Uh, We can help each other, essentially. All right, Spencer Rattler, the Gamecocks need him. He needs them as well. He needs them to help him turn things around. They need him to show that good quarterbacks can come play for South Carolina. But the other one I also thought of is Quinn Ewers. Now, Texas may not need him as much as he needs them all of a sudden because you have Arsh Manning coming next year. But that only ramps up the pressure on Quinn Ewers. And so for Quinn Ewers to transfer there, he's the other one I thought of. Between him and Spencer Rattler, they are the two transfer quarterbacks to me that could have the biggest impact this year. If Ewers does not play well, what does the future hold for him? If he does play really well and Texas does return to being, you know, quote-unquote, back, and they maybe win the Big 12, right? That's big time for Texas and that program and Sarkeesian and Ewers' uh, um, future and the future of college football when you consider, well, Arch Manning's supposed to be coming in next year. If he bottoms out, you wonder what his future holds with Arch Manning coming in next year. So between him and Spencer Rattler. Now, for Rattler, he could have a bigger impact on his program maybe than Quinn Ewers could because Arch Manning's in the hopper. But I think those are the two transfer quarterbacks that you know could do the most for themselves and maybe their programs as well. I would say Dylan Gabriel's right behind them. And then other guys, too, you know, Bo Nix, Jackson Dart, Keenan Slovis, who I mentioned, are all other ones, too, that could really elevate their stock and try to help the programs in which they're transferring into. Caleb Williams I don't really put on the list because he's already high up. He's already considered a top-three quarterback. He doesn't have to try to turn around his career by transferring. But these other guys can all do themselves a favor and maybe their programs as well. Nobody bigger than Spencer Rattler and I would say also Quinn Ewers. Rattler would have a bigger impact on his program than Ewers. Therefore, maybe I'd go Rattler 1A and Quinn Ewers 1B. But Ewers may even be a bigger name at this point than Rattler is today. And then you also have Arch Manning looming, which is an interesting dynamic. Those are the two to me of all the transfer quarterbacks, and there were plenty. Those are the two guys that may have the most you know, on the line just for themselves or their programs this year. When we come back, speaking of college football, the biggest swing games in college football this year. More Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show.
Coming up, the biggest swing games in college football this year. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Hey, what a rarity it is. It's a Wednesday, and knock on wood, it's not raining. And there's very, uh, there's like a 10% chance of rain in the forecast. So if you listen to the show, you know Wednesday I go play pickup basketball. I may finally be able to get back out there. Fortunately, I'm going to be rusty again. It's been a while. So happy Wednesday to you. And uh, knock on wood, hopefully uh, the rain actually continues to stay away for once. Every Wednesday, it rains around here. Unbelievable. Hey, as we get ready for college football, week zero is a month from now for the college football season. What are the biggest swing games in college football this year? If we're just looking at September, right, non-conference games early in the year, I mean, we could point to just about every game in the SEC. I could tell you about Notre Dame and Clemson later on, but it's those early games that are bigger toss-ups. You have two conferences coming together, the non-conference games, where it's kind of a, an opportunity for the teams to prove themselves, who belongs, who doesn't. If we're looking at just September, just the first three weeks of the season, there's quite a few in week one. We have a handful of good non-conference games to start the year this season. And in week one, you get Cincinnati, you get Arkansas right away week one. First ever meeting between those two. Will Cincinnati be the top group of five team this year? Will they be uh, competing for a, a playoff spot once again? Arkansas, will they be the third best team in the SEC that could potentially challenge Alabama for the division title and a spot in the SEC championship this year? You have Notre Dame and Ohio State week one. Ohio State, we believe, right up there with Alabama is the favorite to go win a national championship. Notre Dame, I'm not too high on year one. But ESPN's FBI, they do give them the fifth best odds to uh, go win it this year. I find that hard to believe. It is also year one of Marcus Freeman. He starts off right away with Ohio State. He's a defensive coach. Ohio State's going to have the most dynamic offense in the country. What are we going to get out of Notre Dame? We'll find out right away. And if Ohio State somehow loses that first game, boy, does that change a lot of things in college football. Wouldn't completely eliminate them or end their season, but it may change your perception of the top teams in college football. You also have Georgia-Oregon week one. I don't think Georgia loses a game in the regular season, but they go up against their now former defensive coordinator, Dan Lanning, at Oregon. And Oregon, of course, a pretty good program. And for Georgia, the first game since national championship, Oregon thinks they could win the Pac-12, maybe be. A sleeper playoff team this year? Well, we'll find out right away. Week one should be an interesting game between those two. You also have Utah-Florida week one. Similar idea. How improved will Florida be this year under Billy Napier? And Utah, I'm really high on. I think they win the Pac-12. Could potentially be a fringe playoff team. But if you go week one and lose right away to Florida, a lot of people, maybe most people, will write you off. It wouldn't be a great start to the year, especially because Florida's not the same Florida that maybe you've been used to in the past. But that's a tough one for Utah right away. And then you also have Florida State LSU to a lesser extent. Most of these quote-unquote swing games are because of, of teams that are, you know, trying to impact the national championship this year. That's not the case with Florida State LSU. They're playing each other for the first time in over 30 years. But it will be interesting because for Florida State, this is a big make-or-break year for Mike Norvell. You start off with LSU in the Superdome. And for LSU, right, first game for Brian Kelly. And uh, how much better will they be in year one? And you know at LSU, there's always expectations. This is not some sort of rebuild year for Brian Kelly. And if you lose, essentially, a home game to Florida State, wouldn't it be a good start for Brian Kelly at his new job? No longer will they consider him family. So Florida State, LSU, also intriguing week one. In week two, there's a few more. You get Alabama-Texas. Now, I don't think Texas is on the same level as Alabama. But a couple of things. A couple of things to prove in this game. Is Alabama 
one of the favorites there with Ohio State. Are they one of the best teams in college football? And on the flip side for Texas, we're going to be asking, is Texas back? But they don't have to necessarily be back. They don't have to necessarily beat Alabama. Can they show that they're good enough to go win the Big 12? Actually compete this year after missing a bowl game a year ago. Week 2 also gives us Pittsburgh and Tennessee, which I think is a really interesting matchup. When they played last year, it was 41-34. Pittsburgh won. They've never lost to Tennessee. Pittsburgh's going to be a different team this year, though. You lose Kenny Pickett. You lose your offensive coordinator. They're going to be more, I imagine, about running the football. I think Tennessee will be the better team this year. But you have what I would say are the two second-place teams in their division. I think Pittsburgh will finish second in the Coastal. I think Tennessee will finish second behind Georgia. So they're not the best teams from their conferences, but you know they're pretty close. They're up there. It's a good matchup between the SEC and the ACC. And we'll find out what type of year Tennessee and Pittsburgh could expect this year when they play each other in Week 2. And then also Week 2, it is a conference game, but Kentucky-Florida right off the bat. And again, I go back to Florida. What are you going to get year one of Billy Napier? And Kentucky, they finished in second last year behind Georgia. How are they going to look this year as a follow-up? Last year was a, a, a touchdown game. Kentucky won by seven. And Florida was a bit of a mess a year ago. Could be interesting early on, right away. When you give me these early SEC games, right, like even South Carolina-Arkansas week two, you throw them right into the fire, Spencer Rattler's first conference game, that should be intriguing. What are we going to get out of Rattler and the Gamecocks this year? What should reasonable expectations be? And on the flip side for Arkansas, can they really be the third best team in the conference? Can the Gamecocks provide them a little bit of a test week two of the season? And then lastly, week three, as we look at just September games, right, because there's swing games all year long, and depending on how teams perform, a game we see now, Right, may not seem as important now as it will a few weeks uh, from now or a couple months when teams have a certain record this year. But the last ones I'll mention are week three. You get Penn State and Auburn. Penn State, I do think, will be better this year. Auburn, right? what are you going to get out of uh, uh, Brian Harson with his job seemingly on the line? And you also have Miami, Texas A&M week three, which is another fascinating one. I'm not as high on Texas A&M, but some people think they could be a playoff team or you know they could be that second team out of the SEC or they could – be the second-best team behind Alabama? I'm not so sure, but I am higher on Miami. I think Miami will win the Coastal, be in the ACC championship game, and then it will be much better under Mario Cristobal. And we'll see right away, week three, two programs that have not been good enough lately will play one another. Right? And only one's going to get out victorious. It'll be a big win for whichever team wins that game. Miami wins that game. That's a big early win for Cristobal to you know set the tone and make a statement. Vice versa, Texas, a- Texas A&M wins that game before going into the SEC schedule. That's a big non-conference win with that tough schedule they'll have. And it certainly will give them, I'm sure, a lot of confidence going up against the SEC teams the rest of the way. We could probably come up with more, but those are a handful of potential swing games to start the year in college football. They're most impactful early on because they set the tone. And because, as we know in college football, a lot of times an early loss can end your whole season, but also just for perception, how we look at these teams. A team wins a big non-conference showcase game, you kind of stop paying attention to them. You forget later on that, uh, actually, that team, they're doing pretty good in their conference. Yeah, you already started ignoring them because, you know, they got blown out by Utah early in the year, and you thought, oh, they must not be that good. But teams obviously can get better as the year goes on. So these early non-conference games can be standalone games, can be some of the best games of the weekend. Conference games haven't started. The schedules are a little weaker. You're paying attention, and it can really set the tone for the whole year or, or how you view one of these teams. Those are some of the big swing games the first three weeks of the college football season, which begins about a week from today. We'll wrap up your Wednesday when we come back. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show 
on ESPN Radio. Wrapping up your Wednesday in the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston however you listen to your podcasts. And head over to charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page, find the podcast there. But also, while there at charlestonsportsradio.com, you can also stream the Morrow Midday Show. Listen online from anywhere in the world. You can always listen to the show through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker as well, from anywhere in the world. And also our free apps for GSPN Charleston in the App Store. And through the app, you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. Appreciate listeners checking in from at least eight different states and multiple countries on this Wednesday. Download the free app today, ESPN Charleston in the App Store, and take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Uh, the game's gotten away from the Braves a little bit. They're down 7-2 to against the Phillies in the bottom of the seventh. So that one's still going on. The Mets play the Yankees tonight. Max Scherzer pitching on his birthday for the Subway Series. Braves currently two games behind the Mets with the trade deadline less than a week away. Braves right now getting beat up a bit by the Phillies. Again, struggling in those finales for whatever reason. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again tomorrow at noon. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio.